1: Question for you: How many inches are in a foot? Okay, everybody knows twelve inches, right? How many feet are in a yard? Okay, I think most people know it's three. How many yards are in a mile? Does anybody know that? I don't think many people do, not at least off the top of their head. Now, you want to talk about um, ounces, pints, quarts, gallon? Do you know? How many pints are in a gallon? Really? I'm betting you don't. Um, You compare that with the fact that there are 100 centimeters in a meter. There are 1,000 millimeters in a meter. And there are 1,000 meters in a kilometer. It's easy to see the simplicity and the rational case for the metric system. And I'll tell you, of all the folks that uh, ran for president recently on the Democratic side that really appealed to me, there's a few that stand out. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Jim Webb, who ran briefly in 2016 uh, before he left the party and became an independent. Big fan of Tulsi Gabbard, who ran briefly in 2020 before she left the party and became an independent. One fellow that I also liked is the former governor of Rhode Island. He was also a Republican. I think he was the governor as an independent, but then he became a Democrat. And that's Lincoln Chafee. One of the things that Lincoln Chafee said, and this was something that a lot of people made jokes about. Well, one of the things that he said during his campaign that made a lot of sense to me is that the United States should adopt the metric system.
2: Earlier, I said, let's be bold. Here's a bold embrace of internationalism. Let's join the rest of the world and go metric.
1: I got to tell you, I thought that was a great suggestion, at least one, at least a debate that the country should have. It's funny, when I was in the leadership of a political party and uh, we were adopting a platform, that was one of the things that I proposed. Is pushing for the metric system. Now that didn't get uh, that didn't get adopted even in our own party's platform. But whatever, I, pu- I propose it. We had a good debate about it. And uh, there was an interesting article that a listener sent to me, written by Ian Thompson, or uh, yeah, Ian Thompson in a, a media outlet called The Register. And it's a feature that chronicles in 1793 how French a uh, French scientist sailed for the United States at the request of Thomas Jefferson, and he carried two objects that could have changed America forever. He never made it, and now the U.S. is stuck with this retro version of measurement that is unique in the modern world. The first was a metal cylinder that was exactly one kilogram in mass. The second was a copper rod, the length of a newly proposed distance measurement the meter. See, Jefferson was a Francophile and he was very keen on the rationality of the metric system in the U.S. But this scientist's ship was blown off course, captured by English p- pirates that worked with the government. They call them privateers. And the scientist died on the island of Montserrat while waiting to be ransomed. And so now here we are. 200 years later, 200-plus years later, and America is one of a handful of countries on the entire planet that maintains its own unique forms of wastes and measures. And it makes no sense. And, you know, one of the things that I was very keen on for a long time is getting the country to have a debate about uh, daylight saving time and the wisdom of daylight saving time or not. Now, we are having that debate. And finally... I don't know if it's going to be done away with or modified somehow or whatever the case is, but at least the country is ready to have that debate. At least it's being debated, proposed in state legislatures around the country and in the halls of Congress. I really think the time has come for the United States to seriously consider adopting the metric system. And now that uh, we're on the verge of another presidential campaign, that seems to be the only time in this country, whether we're talking tax reform, health care reform or anything else, that we actually seriously talk about big ideas. And I don't think there's a bigger idea that's worthy of consideration than the metric system. And now Lincoln Chafee tried this when he ran. He became a punchline. In fact, uh, the Conan O'Brien show on TBS at the time, very funny show. They did kind of a mock campaign ad championing Lincoln Chafee's advocacy for the metric system. This is not an actual campaign ad. This is a Conan O'Brien satire.
3: Lincoln Chafee is 1.8 meters and 72.7 kilograms of red-blooded American. Some question his campaign platform. But don't judge him until you've walked 1,609.34 meters in his shoes. He'll fight to ensure every hectare of this country is safe. And when it comes to health care, he won't budge 2.54 centimeters. When will Chafee let Wall Street off the hook? When hell reaches a cool zero degrees Celsius. Plus, he supports the popular movement to convert the dollar to the euro. Lincoln
1: Chafee. He'll be out of this race in 0.2 nanoseconds. Uh, putting aside the dollar euro aspect of this, I thought it was a shame that Chafee and his idea became a punchline, and I would love for the United States to seriously consider adopting the metric system. What do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. You know, I felt bad. One guy was um, posting in the Facebook group yesterday. That he was waiting on hold 25 minutes yesterday and I didn't get to him and he had waited on hold on Friday 40 minutes and I didn't get to him and uh, the fact is I really I didn't know that he was the same guy I mean his name was Charles there are a lot of people named Charles that call and had I known he was waiting that long on Friday I would have certainly got to him yesterday but I felt bad that he was so upset because I've been in that. Position where I have waited for a long time to talk to a host and they never get to you whatever the case may be. And it's frustrating. So what we're going to do today, I don't want to promise that we're going to do this going forward, but what we're going to do today is we are going to uh, take people in the order in which they've been holding. So whoever holds the longest, that's who we're going to go to next. I don't like doing this every day because that's a recipe for a lot of E. Frank calls and a lot of calls from people like E. Frank so, um, you know, it can be a little monotonous and it can make this show sound like some of the other shows. And I try to make this show sound a lot different from uh, a lot of the other shows you hear, not just on our stations, but uh, all across the radio spectrum. But that's what we'll do today. Just uh, whoever's waiting the longest will get to you first. 848 because I did feel bad for that guy uh, that he was waiting so long. Uh, you, a lot of you might remember that scene in Pulp Fiction, Right great picture Samuel L Jackson and John Travolta and the two of them are running around they're they're kind of gangster types it's a great film if you haven't seen it it's almost 30 years old now so I'm guessing if you haven't gotten around to it you may not have you might not see it but still worth seeing and they're doing it they're having a discussion where John Travolta's character Vincent Vega is telling Samuel L Jackson's character about his recent trip to Europe and some of the little things that you notice as an American
4: visiting Europe. But you know what the funniest thing about Europe is? What? It's the little differences. I mean, they got the same over there that they got here, but it's just just there, it's a little different. Example. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like a you little know, paper cup, I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer in McDonald's. And you know what they call a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, man. They got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the f- quarter pounder is. What do they call it? They call it uh, Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese? That's right. What do they call it? Big Mac. Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Love Big Mac.
1: Now, I don't think we should be renaming the Big Mac. Big Mac can be the Big Mac. But what's wrong with the Royale with cheese? What about... Moving America to the metric system. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Hey, speaking of the metric system, uh, we're going to go live to the U.K., at least I believe he's in the U.K., to Michael Story in about 15 minutes. Michael Story, you might remember I brought uh, his story to your attention um, a couple of months ago. He wrote this uh, article that went viral about how he overcame his fear of flying and what he's been able to do since overcoming this fear. And I really think, and a lot of people have said this is the case. I really think that what he's written in this Substack piece could be a model for everyone overcoming whatever their fear is. So I'm going to talk with him about that and a bunch of other things. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me say hello first to Mike in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Hi, Frank. Uh, uh,
3: Frank, you know.
5: Uh if you go to school for chemistry or physics or anything like that, even 30 years ago, it was all, you learn metric right away. Uh, I've been working in laboratories 30 years. They're all metric. I mean, everything's really, you know, grams, milligrams, all that stuff. I mean, the only place I don't see it is on my car
6: getting gas and buying meat, (laughs) you know,
1: Right. Well, but I know when you're when you're um driving, you know, uh, on the roads and it says, uh, you know, Buffalo is 96 miles away or Albany's 96 miles away. That's in miles, not meters. I mean, the the st- you everything, I mean, uh, when, maybe not in the lab setting, but by and large, uh, you know, almost everything that we talk about in terms of distance, in terms of measurements, and a lot of people were complaining to me that when they were cooking their Thanksgiving meals and things like that, about the the inconsistency of cups and quarts and things like that. I mean, you would admit that the the metric system is not the norm in this country, right, Mike? Not on
5: your staples, you know, and not how you uh, run your you know your home and stuff like that. No, I mean it is not. You'll see it on some of your bills. You'll see it on some of your packages. They have to change all the signs, cost
1: money to do that. No, I realize that. I think it's it's still worth it, Mike. Uh, You disagree, it sounds like. All right, Mike, thank you. Uh, Yeah, I mean, look, I recognize that it's not uh, something that is without cost. I think the simplicity of the metric system, though, is a winner. It's consistently based on decimal numbers. The uh, other system, what they used to call the English system, but I don't think they call it that anymore because even the English don't use it, it's based on all sorts of different numbers. The metric system works well with percentages, but if you use the English system or the imperial system, it's very difficult to work out. Try deducting 10% of your, from your body weight in stones and pounds. You have the metric system, which is able to deal with very large and very small quantities. You just throw change the prefix. Kilometer becomes centimeter in no time. It's all in powers of 10 or powers of 100. And you have the imperial system where you have large units that are limited in size and have a very awkward relationship with smaller units. Small quantities are handled with awkward fractions. You have the metric system where there's one sort of unit for weight. You have grams and it's multiples, grams, kilograms, all that kind of thing. And then you have uh, the whatever we use, the English system or the American system, really, which is totally inconsistent. Um, You have the metric system where there's one system of volume. A thousand milliliters equals a liter. A thousand liters equals one cubic meter. Now, in our system, you have fluid ounces. You have pints. You have quarts. You have gallons. You have cubic inches. You have feet. You have yards. To me... It makes no sense. What do you think? What is the case against the metric system? Uh, Look, I think the caller just mentioned one, which is that it costs money to change all the signs and everything. I get it. Okay, that's one. That's a short-term cost. What else? What is the possible other... Do you know how we got all the measurements for the American system, what they used to call the English system? Do you know how they determined the length of a foot? It was the length of the king's foot. That's how long it measured. It measured. It was totally arbitrary. So the metric system at least has some um, consistency to it. At least it makes sense. All right. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Rob is in Yorktown. Hello, Rob. Hey Frank, how you doing? Good, thanks.
7: Uh, absolutely not. Uh, just because. Ninety um, percent of the world uses it, doesn't make it right. And right, it's right for them, but um, all right, all of Europe uses it. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we should use it.
1: Well, so what is? And but it's not just Europe though. I mean, you're talking uh, South America, you're talking Africa, you're talking yeah, Australia. That's fine. It's that's fine; you know, they can use it. But so, when they come here, they use the American system. Right. So, what is the benefit to keeping the American system?
7: Well, number one, the price—you gotta—the price is gonna—you gotta be billions of dollars to change everything, change signs, packages, on all the highways on everything. That's that's insane.
1: Okay, so the the, cost—that's the—that's the—that's the thing.
7: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: So, do you really think it would cost billions? Well, yeah. All right. Well, yeah,
7: because cause, 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 cause you got um, all the highways, you right? Know, instead of mileage to um certain ex to Buff- say Buffalo or Albany, you gotta you gotta put um kilometers or whatever. Yeah. I,
1: I really think though that uh, if we subscribe to that, though, essentially we can never improve anything. Because whenever you improve something, um, you're always going to have to update something. What about this? What if we did this, Rob? What if we just said, going forward, prospectively, any new signs that are put up has to be in the metric system. If it's an old sign, it can be grandfathered in. It can live out the rest of its days. But new signs have to be, have to use the metric system. Also, you know, whenever someone new was elected governor or mayor or or borough president or president, they change all those signs anyway to say, welcome to New York, Kathy Hochul, governor. Welcome to New York City, Eric Adams, mayor. So if we're changing these signs every single time a politician gets elected anyway— uh can't we just the next time we change one of these signs when a politician gets elected change the measurement to the metric system?
7: We could, but it's still it's it's what you get used to, too.
1: Well, right, right, but now we're all used to the English system and thanks for the call, Rob. I appreciate you listening and and calling. Um we're all used to the English system, but if we started teaching everybody the metric system now, everyone would be used to that. Right, So, again, I recognize that it would be a little bit of a learning curve. But what would it take, a week? You know, there was a time when I was growing up that you would be able to dial a phone number. That's all you have to do, dial a phone number. And then, you know, it became about uh, 20 years ago, 11-digit dialing. You had to, even if it was in your own area code, dial one, the area code, then the phone number. People were freaking out. Oh, my goodness. Why do I have to dial 212? I'm right here in the same area code. And you know what? People got used to it. You don't hear about it anymore. 800-848-9222. You do have to dial that area code even if you're calling from an 800 number. Jay is in Ohio. Hello, Jay.
8: Hey, Frank, I usually
2: agree with you on everything.
1: But Well, that's that's how you know you're a little you're a couple of aces short of a full deck. <laughs>
2: Anyways, I'm calling from Cincinnati, Ohio. That's That used to be the machine tool capital of the world, Frank. And those machine tools had threads that were cut per inch, okay? Um, when you talk about a standard, that's called a standard. That was designed by Pratt & Whitney, which was back east, a tool company that designed that. And uh, that's just how it was. So it's job creation. It's good to have two standards. You go to the hardware store, you got your aisle there with the metric, the you know, the metric screws are in one department. The metric bolts are in, no, you know, the standard threads in another department. So it creates jobs. There's tools. Think all the tool companies that make tools. you got to have two sets
1: of tools. Right, but why couldn't you have tools just made under a metric rubric going forward?
2: Um the best thing about the metric system, in my opinion, I had a motorcycle that had a, a metric speedometer. I always thought I was doing 100, and I was only going 66 <laughs> miles an hour.
1: Fair, fair enough, Jay. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Sam is in Newark. Hello, Sam. Sam. All right. Sam's got something else to do. Uh, I'm starting to see why we we don't go with this process of just rewarding whoever's holding the longest. 800-848-9222. Igor is in Fairfield. Hello, Igor.
3: Yes,
5: greetings, Frank. With regards to the last caller and the threads, you know, practically speaking, all of the threads on every machine, every appliance that's being made today is in the metric system. And, you know, I, I agree with you. It's just a matter of ripping off the scab and just doing it, right? The last time the country made this move Was under uh, the last the only president that was an engineer and that was jimmy carter and it just didn't take right in 79 and 80 there were a lot of signs that went up for the metric system but it, it just didn't take and the same thing with speedometers in the cars you saw kilometers per hour for the very first time but it just didn't take you know in little little dribs and drabs you saw that effect When they talked about displacement and automobile engines, they went to leaders, and nobody's talking about cubic inches anymore. So in a couple of little places, it did take, but just not not across the board.
1: Uh, Well, I will point out, though, that uh, Jimmy Carter was not the only president that was an engineer. Herbert Hoover was also uh, a very successful uh, engineer and uh, had a pretty good career as an engineer and working in the private sector before going into public life. 800-848-9222. Dave is in Comac. Hello, Dave.
3: How are you? Great. I actually tried out for the prices right in 2003 or 2004. I saw the documentary you're talking about on YouTube a while ago.
1: Oh, good. Well, hopefully you'll enjoy the interview uh, just as much uh, in the uh, in the third hour of the program.
3: Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, it was
9: an all day affair, Trent, and I n- I never got picked as a contestant, but got in to watch the show. Oh,
1: good. Nice. But
3: the guy, he didn't cheat. He basically. Well, we'll get it, like,
9: we'll get uh, into we'll man, get it
1: we'll get into it in the third hour, Dave. We'll get into it in the third yeah. hour. Okay, take you. All right, thank you. 800 Joe is in Newark. Hello, Joe.
3: Yeah, uh, This
9: they went into the metric system years ago. They started to go into it. And then when you were working on a car, some of the nuts and bolts, were some were metric, some were standard. You went crazy with that. And with our old system of inches and this and that, we went to the moon and back with that old system. And I don't know if you remember, something was overshot. But I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of miles,
5: because they were using the wrong system.
4: Oh, you know, they, actually, they I didn't know up. that. I'll have to. Uh,
1: yeah, I'll, you check it out. I, I will. Uh, I will have like, to go like, over that uh, with. Like uh, uh,
10: Casey Stingle used to say, you can look it up.
1: Uh, <laughs> Well, thank you, Joe. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with Michael Story in just a moment. He had a fascinating, fascinating story about how he overcame his fear of flying and a couple of lessons that we could all learn from that. 800 We'll get into this a little bit later and then we'll talk about the prices, right? A bunch of other fun things throughout the course of the program. This is The Other Side of Midnight straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
3: When you see a gentleman beat around the lady, be buzzing. Just count to ten, then count again. They're sure to be an even dozen.
8: A multiplication—that's
2: the name of the game.
3: And each generation, they play the same. Now there was two butterflies casting their eyes both in the
1: same direction. The great You'd Bobby Darren, real million, name Walden Robert Casado. Uh, multiplication, a fine song. Hey, uh, Michael's story is quite a storyteller, and uh, he's an interesting guy. He is described as a G.J.P. super forecaster and the director at the Swift Center. He's also uh, developed a Substack following, which is quite substantial, and uh, de- writes about a whole bunch of interesting subjects on there. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Appreciate it.
11: Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Michael, uh, let me, because you are calling from uh, across the pond, let me get you to weigh in on the subject that we just dealt with. The I think the United States should consider converting to the metric system. As somebody that has spent a fair amount of time on both continents, what would be your opinion of something like that?
11: Oh, I don't know. That's very tricky. oh uh, well, I don't know. I, 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 I think... Uh, like most people, right? The old metric system is sort of more practical, but there's a romance to the uh, to the imperial system, right? it's it's sort of traditional, and it makes you feel more nostalgic. So when I go to the U.S., I, um I really enjoy that things are sort of still in the feet and inches and so on. it's It's a very nice feeling. So well, uh, I don't know I think that the cost of switching would be it would be high.
1: Yeah, no, that's what it's something that a lot of listeners uh, raise. I, I don't see. Um, yeah, well, whatever. We'll say we'll say that. I mean, if there, if if romance and nostalgia is the reason to keep it, I uh, I think we'd still be. Reading from telegrams instead of emails and faxes instead of text messages, but that's not not, neither here nor there. Hey, I introduced you as what uh, your Twitter biography describes you as as a GJP super forecaster. What is GJP?
11: Oh, okay. Well, that's uh, yeah. Pull up that thread. Um, So, um, so uh, well, so a few years ago uh, in the US. Uh, the, uh, there's an institution, a US government institution called IARPA, which is the intelligence equivalent of ARPA and DARPA, um, and um, IARPA does intelligence advanced research project activity. That's what it stands for, and they set up a contest to make predictions about the future, uh, which is kind of how a lot of defence procurement stuff works, right? They uh, they run a big contest, and then you know teams can enter, and you, you can like win prizes. And I joined a team uh, which entered this competition to try and make accurate predictions about the future, and the team that I was part of won and uh, the uh, and so I <laughs> was kind of long story short uh, they won uh, by or they, we won by um, by kind of building teams of people that were consistently more accurate at predicting the future, and those people were known as super forecasters and so that's oh. my uh, my history there and that's actually why I ended up uh, needing to uh get a bit more comfortable with, with aeroplanes because I was living in London at the time and the project was based at uh, at UPenn uh, at uh, at Wharton and um and of course you know it's <laughs> to kind of go and visit people that I was uh, uh involved in this project with. Required me to cross the Atlantic, sure. and uh, it became impractical to do that through any other means than airplanes.
1: Yeah, can you give us uh, maybe just one example of uh, a trend or something that we can look forward to in in the future that you foresee?
11: Oh, I don't know. That's tricky. <laughs> oh, you really put me on the spot. I know.
1: I don't know well, we actually. asked the
11: tough question. That's tricky.
1: All right, fair enough. All right. Well, we <laughs> want we'll have you back on that subject. All right. How long, um, you, you had this great uh, column on Substack, and uh, I'm going to share it on my Facebook page if people haven't seen it, at uh, Facebook.com MoranoFan about overcoming your, your fear of f- flying. How long had you had a fear of flying uh, long distances? Oh, man, probably
11: about 10 years. So when I was a kid, I flew and it was totally fine. And then I think when I was in my late teens, I suddenly started to find it very unsettling. And, um, and there wasn't really an incident that sort of brought it about, but I just I just started to think about it and think, oh no, this isn't natural, this isn't right, you know, where where you know people shouldn't be up in the sky. This doesn't feel kind of correct in some way. And I just started to get very 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 uncomfortable with it to the point that I just felt. If I have a take a job somewhere or I uh you know want to need to visit somewhere, I'm just gonna drive, I'll take a boat, I'll take a train, I'll go anywhere, but I'm I just won't go on a plane to do it. So for about ten years I traveled, yeah, I still traveled a lot and I went all over the place, but I just would do anything to avoid going on a plane. I would I would drive, you know, two thousand miles <laughs> rather than flying a plane, which takes, you know, a long time uh, staying in motels and stuff, uh, and I would just do anything to avoid uh, going in a plane and i and i um i remember taking like a, a trip with my family and um you know a drive and i was like okay i'll meet you there we're all gonna go on vacation so i'll meet you there i'm gonna drive and i was driving you know for four or five days and then my you know parents would text me the morning of, of the day i was gonna arrive saying hey we're just setting off to the airport we'll see you this afternoon you know And I think, and I just remember thinking, this is, this is crazy. You know, what are you doing? (laughs) Like you're you're spending this enormous amount of effort to avoid getting in a plane. Uh, But when you really are uncomfortable with something, that just feels like a very natural thing to do. It just seems like such a big deal. And then it's very hard to confront.
1: You know, uh, that's so interesting. And in reading your piece, that's what I wondered. I wondered if there was, Some incident with whether it was the terrorist attacks on September 11th or seeing the movie Die Hard 2, which led you to develop this sudden fear of flying long distances. But it doesn't sound like there was any sort of impetus for it. It sounds like this is something that sort of just developed uh, in your own brain without necessarily an immediate clear cause.
11: Well, it crept up on me, but I will say so. I so my friends. So so my experience of this was, yeah, it just crept up on me. My my friends tell me. Uh, so my father was was in a, a plane which uh, which sort of crashed. I don't know whether you could fully call it crash. He survived. Uh, pretty much everybody was was fine, uh, but he was in a plane that kind of went off the end of a runway and went into a field uh, in Ethiopia, and. My uh, my friends say, you know, well, maybe this had something to do with it. I but that was when I was much younger. You know, I was about five when that happened. Um, and so I, you know, I'm not sure that that ever, you know, I don't know. I, people would say, well, you know, if you've had a close family member, you've had a bit of a close shade, you know, maybe that sort of drives you in some way to develop this type of attitude. But, you know, I, from five onwards, I just thought, oh, this is fine. i get on the plane and just think, oh, great. Now I'm going somewhere nice. Let's enjoy that. And then just suddenly it started to go. Um and and I don't know, so it's possible that it that it developed as mm. a result of that exposure. And yeah, and I mean, it's it's silly to say it, but I mean, I um, uh, in the in the '90s, I I lived in in New York, uh, where you are now, see, and um, uh, with my family, and uh, you know, and I, it sounds silly to say, okay, nine eleven doesn't help, but it definitely doesn't help, right?
1: Sure. <laughs> oh no, no, I believe me, I I get
11: that. and yeah, you know, you you see it every day, and. Um, it took because I didn't fly for a long time it was a long time before I visited New York again and I remember you know, the first time being there uh you know t- probably a decade later and and thinking you know skyline just doesn't look right and it was just a very unsettling feeling so I think those things can impact you as well even though it's a kind of one off like freak terrible thing that happens and you know it doesn't happen very often but it can definitely stick in your mind and really make you worry about things.
1: Sure. Uh, Talking with Michael story. So when you, you decided that this was a fear that you needed to overcome when you were constantly dealing with the inconvenience of driving when you needed to be flying and the practicality of needing to be at uh, events in the United States when you were living in the UK, is that right?
11: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, so the the, the time when I really realized I'm going to have to do something about this is, I needed to attend a conference in California. So I was in London. So I'm like, okay, how am I going to get to California? I mean, I had to go. It was you know, completely important that I had to go for my job. You know? So I was like, okay, what am I going to do? So, so I found a boat uh, that would take me from Southampton to, to New York, the, the Queen Mary 2, which I'm sure you see sometimes sure. at uh, docks at Brooklyn Seaports. So I was like, okay, I can get the boat uh, to Brooklyn. And then I'm gonna get the Amtrak, and I'll get the Amtrak to Chicago, and then the Amtrak goes from Chicago all the way uh, down uh, to, to San Francisco almost uh, uh nearly all the way there. So I did that. so there was seven days on the boat uh then another, you know a, a, another day to Chicago and another two days uh, all the way down uh, uh, to San Francisco. and I realized that this is crazy <laughs> this is this is eleven days uh, of travel time. To get there and there's going to be 11 days to go home and you could you this is not sustainable so that was what really triggered me to realize like okay you know i'm, I'm kind of working on things that involve being in, in the us again and uh it, you are not gonna you are not gonna be able to sustain uh spending weeks of your life at sea uh, on the Queen Mary in order just to attend conferences. So that's when I realized, like, oh, you've really got really to crack on with this, Michael. <laughs> All right, the
1: million-dollar question uh, or the 1.3 million euro question, depending on what system uh, we're in, how did you do it? How were you able to overcome your fear of flying, which was so, I'll call it paralyzing, that it led you to spend hours more traveling than necessary?
11: So I it really it was brute force. So what I did is I just decided you, you, you've just got to do this until you get comfortable with it. You know, you've got to, um, you just got to make yourself do it. And I couldn't find any other way around it. I went on courses. Like I don't know if you have you've experienced this, but uh, a lot of airlines will have like a class that you can go to for a weekend and it's run by the airline and, um, and you can kind of go and stay in a hotel at the airport for the weekend. And uh, they, they take on a tour of the plane and you can sort of, you know, look at the plane when it's on the ground and kind of see it all and look at it from underneath and kind of they show you know how safe it is and all the safety systems and stuff, and it's supposed to be reassuring. And uh, and I did that, and I did those courses, <laughs> the weekend classes and, and I was still felt the same afterwards. In fact, I went to one of those classes for a weekend, and then they had another – it didn't work, and I thought, oh, maybe I just didn't pay enough attention. So a few months later, they ran another class, and I went back, and I recognized a few other guys from the first time. I said, oh, I didn't work on you either. <laughs> we were all back. like you know, We all had to be held back a grade because so, <laughs> we were still terrified. So um, eventually I was like, oh, I've just got to do this. So um, I decided, like, just, okay, I'm just going to start doing this. I'm going to make a rule. You have to fly every 10 days. That's a reasonable amount of time. So, You've got to fly every 10 days.
1: Just to reiterate, Michael, so you went through two classes – to overcome your fear of flying, those didn't work. So you said, "Okay, I'm still afraid of flying. I'm now going to start flying once every ten days."
11: Yeah, I just said I, I'll just go somewhere. Doesn't matter where it is. Uh, luckily, at the time I was living in London, so pretty near Heathrow Airport, nice, busy airport, lots of flights. And I would just go on these uh, these apps, you know, Skyscanner or whatever, um, similar to that. the like Google Flights is pretty good now. And you would just go on these apps, and I would just search for what's the cheapest destination I can fly to and from you know, in a day. I can fly in the morning and fly back in the evening and I'll just do something nice when I'm there to kind of deal with it, you know, go to lunch somewhere, go to an art gallery, go and see something. And I just thought, I'll just do it. I'll just take the cheapest flight I can find. Doesn't matter where it goes. I'm just gonna go there and tolerate it and uh, and and you know and I'll go. And so I set myself this target of like once every ten days you have to get on a plane to go somewhere. And um and I did and I did that for two years. It basically it took two years before I felt like okay you finally feel <laughs> like this is comfortable but it was a pretty it was actually it, it turned out very cool which is which is what i read the alphabet it was um it turned out to be actually uh you know initially it was pretty stressful it's not very nice to do something that you have a kind of a genuine phobia of that you find very very difficult um but once i started to get into the rhythm of it you know it actually became really fun and, and you know people would uh uh, start suggesting places to me, or if they found some super cheap deal, they would send it my way. They'd say, "Hey, look, you know, you can fly this this plane here, or just go here," and it started to uh, just open up so many, um, yeah, just open up a lot of opportunities that I wasn't expecting.
1: It, give folks a, an idea of understanding that you were seeking the least expensive flight to continue to engage in this experiment. On give folks an idea over two years of your flight fear training, how much you spent in airline tickets?
11: Oh goodness, I've never added up, and I'm not sure I. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to know. <laughs> I think that, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I would say it. Sometimes it was, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was probably quite a lot, to be fair. I, I think, I mean, it's, sometimes it's pretty good, right? If you just went on a, uh, you know, a little trip from London to Copenhagen or something, you could do that for a day, and that might set you back maybe 70 pounds or $100 or something like that return. Some of those are pretty cheap, um, but sometimes it was further, and sometimes if it was, a, uh, you know, a holidays or whatever, then it would be, of course, the flight prices go up at those times. Um, sometimes somebody else would pay for it. Like I would, you know, if someone invited me to speak in a conference, they'd pay my, my airfare. So they would cover the cost if I was going to go and do something like that. So I I don't know. I never added it up, but it's, yeah, it's gotta be in the thousands, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah, (laughs) I
1: I would think so. And um, so is this strategy of taking whatever you're afraid of and forcing yourself to do it every 10 days is this uh, is this something that is this a playbook that can be used for people conquering other fears that they may have? Whether it's a fear of heights, a fear of roller coasters, a fear of spiders, a fear of whatever, do you think that this is something that uh, would work for other people conquering whatever fear they have?
11: I I think so. I mean, I, I I've talked to people. Um, you know, I I mean, I, as I mentioned, I went to these two weekend classes for uh, for trying to cure for flying but I also went to like a general uh like weekend seminar thing that was about like curing phobias of all kinds and so I met people with phobias of all those things you talk about you know spiders and uh you know people with a fear of uh uh you know sometimes very unusual you know people had fear you know, phobias of things that you wouldn't even consider scary at all you know I mean a spider you can kind of understand because a spider could bite you you know but that people would have a phobia of like something very innocuous a, you know door handle you know this oh i can't touch a door handle i'm scared about They think what but i think what can be helpful is like you know it's, it's helpful just to kind of if you i think sometimes if you have a kind of reaction to something like oh this is a scary thing this is dangerous i don't feel comfortable doing it but then if you if you do it every, every so often and each time you do it it's kind of okay and you have a you have a try and have a good experience you try and build in something fun you know, so you go, OK, I'm going to fly. But when I get there, I'm going to make sure I go to a nice, uh, you know, restaurant and eat something good. Or I'm going to visit a friend or I'm going to take a friend with me. I'm going to invite my buddies. I mean, that was a cool thing. Sometimes my friends would come with me i and say, hey, I'm going here for the day. You know, you guys want to come? And quite often they would. And so we'd have a little, uh, you know, fun day out somewhere. And I, over time, right, you replace this like this fear reaction with like these happy memories and like good times that you've experienced from from something. And I think over time it can help. So, like, yeah, maybe if you fear of spiders or something, but if you, you know, went to the zoo you know, every couple of weeks and just were around the spiders and, okay, gradually you had a good time and you brought your friends with you and maybe you went on a date to the zoo, that kind of thing, then uh, maybe you'd start to develop some happy association with it and the, the kind of fear response will gradually fade away. So it, it can work, but it just takes a lot of time. Like, it's not sure. a pleasant thing. And I think, uh, um, you know, I, I did it out of, Really, it was just necessity because I, 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 you know, once it's taking you ten days to uh, to take a trip to to go to a conference, I mean that's not sustainable. Right, no,
1: no doubt about it. <laughs> uh, talking with Michael story of of uh, linked to his Substack piece on. Uh, on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash uh, Murano fan, you could read it. But, Michael, uh, since you've been able to conquer this, what have you been able to do? Obviously, you alluded to that super forecaster conference. What else that you would have been very limited in doing had you not been able to conquer your fear of flying?
11: I Well, so many things. I mean, I think with a lot of jobs now, if you can't fly very much, you know, it's hard to get a job. You know, I mean, uh, a lot of jobs want you to travel around and do things. Um, and, uh, I think that's, that's obviously part of the story, but socially, I think it's been very valuable. I mean, the thing that surprised me when I went into this, I was like, okay, I've got a job where it's going to be hard for me. If I can't attend a conference, because I can't fly, that's going to be hard for me to do. You know, I'm going to struggle. But what I realized is actually there's all these other benefits. I mean, if you fly around a lot, you get to meet a lot of people. People think it's kind of interesting what you're doing. And so they're more likely to meet you, you know, if you, if you just call somebody and say, Hey, look. I'm doing this experiment where I'm going to fly somewhere every 10 days. I haven't got anywhere to go this week. I'm going to come see you if you want to meet up. You know, a lot of people will say yes to that. And so you end up like meeting more people and having a kind of, you know, getting a little insight into different things that people are doing. Um, and it's been pretty, uh, yeah, it's been pretty big. And in the end, I um, uh, ended up uh, uh, meeting uh, uh, somebody who became my girlfriend. And then we ended up getting married. And we were working in different parts of the world. And right. I realize now, you bet, like, we wouldn't have been able to really sustain that relationship if we hadn't been able to fly, you know? So, so it's pretty, um, uh, you know, it's something like that. You realize that totally changes your life. Like if we'd have met five years previously when I was kind of grounded, what would we have done? I don't know. Maybe we would have just had a couple of dates and said, okay, this isn't really going to be practical. So, yeah,
1: uh, no, that's uh, a, that's a great example. What's been the uh, feedback to your Substack piece in which you chronicle your efforts to overcome your fear of flying?
11: Oh, I had some lovely, uh, lovely responses from people. I, I, it's, it's, such, it's so nice. Like I heard from a lot of people who kind of had other things that they found really hard that they had to kind of really work on about themselves and wanted to overcome. So yeah, people with other phobias or people that were like very uncomfortable with, with something and they just said, yeah, you know, that, that experience that they found of, like, I'm just going to commit to doing this. It doesn't matter if I do it well. It doesn't matter if I see results straight away. You know, I'm just going to commit to this for the long term and like hope, you know, and trust that. If I stick to this for long enough, it's going to pay off. And I think a lot of things in life are like that, right? Like, you know, uh, uh, eating healthy or getting to the gym or anything like that. It kind of works like that. So I think that, yeah, I I had a lot of very nice, uh, nice response from people. And also a lot of people saying, hey, if you, you know, if you want to come say hi to my city, then come say hi. So that was kind of cool.
1: (laughs) But you're not still doing this uh, repeated flying situation now.
11: No, no. Well, I still fly now. as, as right, but you, know, you fly but like as
1: needed, right? You yeah, don't well, go as a chore yeah, exactly. every 10 day. Um well, this is this is terrific. I've really enjoyed some of the other articles that you've written on a variety of subjects. Uh tell folks um where they can find your your Substack, Michael.
11: Oh yeah. Uh, MW Story, Michael Williams Story, at uh, Substack.com. If you want to come, uh, come check it out there, then that would be great. Love to have more people reading.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Michael. I hope we can talk again. I love your piece, and I hope a lot of people will learn lessons in terms of conquering their own fears from reading it.
11: Oh, thank Thank you. it's been terrific to be here.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you Michael W story. If you want to comment on uh, any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is the other side of midnight, straight ahead. The other
0: side of midnight. 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 It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
12: Can we pretend that
0: airplanes
13: in the night sky are like shooting stars? I can really use a wish right now, right now, right now. Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky are like shooting stars? I can really use a wish right
1: now, right now, right now. Yeah, I could use a dream or a genie or a wish. Go back to a place much simpler than this Cause after all the party and it's smashing and crashing And all the glitz and the glam and the fashion And all the pandemonium and all the madness There comes a time where you fade to the blackness And when you This is The Other Side of Midnight. And you and you I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, we're going to get back to your calls in just a moment. It's no secret if you've listened to uh, this show that uh, you know that uh, egg pro- eggs are my favorite food. Love eggs. They are by far my favorite food. And what is happening with the egg economy right now is very frightening because I, I saw a meme the other day about uh showing, uh, oh, I wanted to get something expensive for Valentine's Day for my wife. And it shows the person bringing his wife a carton of eggs. But it's only funny because it's true the uh, consumer we are seeing egg prices skyrocket um you, i mean it is not unusual to see in some cases especially if you buy organic eggs like we do to see a carton of eggs cost uh, $10 and uh, a, the consumer advocacy group farm action is actually asking the federal trade commission to investigate the egg industry for price fixing the group is saying that calmaine foods saw $535 million in gross profits in the 26 weeks ending November 26th. That's 10 times the profits they saw during the same period in 2021. Now, that doesn't mean they're engaged in price fixing, but some people are raising concerns that maybe all this news coverage of inflation and egg prices and the avian bird flu and so forth – Maybe that is leading to some food manufacturers, some food distributors, the people that are in charge of pricing these eggs. Maybe it's leading them to price gouge, right? So I'm not saying that's the case, but it is interesting. The bottom line is if you're a consumer, especially an egg-loving consumer like I am, you're paying an arm and a leg. Now, I, so I've stopped eating eggs. Last month or so, maybe the last three weeks, I am no longer eating eggs. My wife still eats them. And I will make one. I made one egg for my son uh, over the weekend, but I, I don't want to contribute to just this this crazy eggflation, and it's frustrating. And I've been looking for an alternative to an, an egg substitute. Now, somebody suggested egg beaters, but I couldn't tell if the egg beaters were also seeing an uptick in uh, in prices. And I couldn't tell if it was really that much of a a savings, to be honest. So um, I suggested, in all seriousness, and I know other people that have done this, I suggested to my wife, and I'm not joking about this, that we get a chicken. And I know other people that have done this very successfully, and they have all sorts of eggs. They have more eggs than they could even eat in a week or a month or a year. They have eggs upon eggs. And I said, wouldn't this be nice? We get a chicken. Chicken put it in the backyard, and we'll have plenty of eggs. And my wife says, now, I think we have a decent-sized yard. It's not huge, but it's decent. Um, She says it's not big enough to put a chicken coop in there. Okay, I'll defer to her. She is, uh, you know, she's an expert on this kind of thing. Fine. But I am wondering if there's anyone else that does have a backyard that's big enough for a chicken coop, and maybe somebody that already has a chicken, and maybe... I can work out something with you, whereas instead of me going to the grocery store and paying all these exorbitant egg prices, or should I say egg exorbitant egg prices, maybe uh, we – see, even Kenneth laughed at that one. You know that's funny or at least punny. But maybe we can work out a deal where I can chip in for the chicken feed or something along that nature. I'll do some appearances on your behalf or something. I can record your answering machine message, whatever the case may be. And you can give us eggs that that chicken produced. Maybe we can partner on a chicken somewhere. If anyone is interested in that, please email me, uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com, because this is very disturbing to me. And I'm not sure how to handle this, but I got to figure out something here. If egg prices don't come down in a hurry, I need either a good egg substitute or a chicken. That's it. All right. Coming up next hour, we got a lot to get to. Um, we're going to get into the curious case of conspiracy theories. Also, have uh, a whole lot of mail. We made a trip to the post office, and we have a stack of mail which we're going to bring to your attention. And um, in the words of the great Bob Barker, who we'll be talking about more in our third hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cats spayed or neutered. Are a lot of great things about being on the radio in the overnight hours. And one of them is you can uh, spend some time examining conspiracy theories. Now, what's a conspiracy theory, right? So uh, the a conspiracy theory is a, a term that is used to describe anything that really deviates significantly from the, um, the accepted mainstream of fact, right? Now, sometimes conspiracy theories can be relatively harmless. Sometimes they are neither harmless nor harmful. And other times I think a discussion about them, and I think the JFK assassination falls squarely in this category, I think a discussion about them can be, can be incredibly helpful in examining a bunch of different areas of uh, policy, of media coverage, wherever the case may be. Sometimes, though, a conspiracy theory can be very harmful. If there's a conspiracy theory that um, the the Jews control the world, that's harmful, okay? Um, So I try not to spend a lot of time giving any bandwidth to those kind of things, but the... In discussing conspiracy theories, and even using that term, it ignores the fact that there are a whole bunch of conspiracy theories that have turned out to be true. And uh, Isaac Saul, who's been a guest on this show before, I think the most recent time he was on this uh, show was uh, uh, maybe election night. And Basically, he wrote – he writes the Tangle newsletter. I subscribe to the free version, but there's also a a subscriber version that you can pay to subscribe to. I'd love to be able to have a a newsletter that people are willing to pay to subscribe to. The guy probably makes a mint. Uh, By the way, if you want to subscribe to my free email, occasional newsletter, you can just send me an email and say, hey, send me your emails. Morano at WABCradio.com. Although I've heard – A lot of people aren't getting my emails, including a lot of people that are on my list. So I suspect I may be caught getting caught in people's spam filter. So if you haven't gotten an email from me in a while, maybe uh, go to your spam and make sure that I'm not ending up in there. But anyway, he wrote a very interesting piece on Friday in the Tangle newsletter where he says one of the most, and I agree with everything he says here. One of the most overused terms in tole- today's political discourse is conspiracy theory. And he says it's so overused that the exe- the expression has essentially become meaningless. In 2023, something is a conspiracy theory if you don't agree with it or you find any of the underlying facts that drive a belief system to be uh, uh, unconvincing. In part, it's overused because the bar for what qualifies as a political conspiracy, has fallen to an incredibly low level. Oxford defines conspiracy theory as a belief that some secret but influential organization is responsible for an event or phenomenon. That seems like a good definition, but it introduces a whole set of problems, depending on who you think is influential or qualifies as an organization and to what degree their influence is secret. A lot of things may meet the threshold of conspiracy theory. And Isaac Saul writes, my definition for conspiracy theory would look something like this. A belief or set of belief which connects unrelated observations together based on a set of fundamentally false conclusions. And he writes, as much as I like this definition, it creates other complications. In an era where most people can use the Internet to search just about anything, we're all playing with an expansiveness of observations that can bend reality. These days... I could pretty much come up with any absurd claim I want and find something that resembles supporting evidence. Since Tangle, that's his newsletter, is in the business of bridging political divides, trying to get folks to step out of their news bubbles and hear arguments they may not like, one of the most common questions I get is, quote, how do you talk to someone who believes a conspiracy theory? And Isaac writes, his answer is usually, what is the conspiracy theory? The uncomfortable truth a lot of news consumers seem intent on ignoring is that most conspiracy theories contain an element of true observation or fundamentally sound reasoning or even both. Some ideas that are widely panned as conspiracy theories turn out to be true. And that's what I'd like to look at. I'd like for you to call in and share with me a conspiracy theory, something that was once labeled as a conspiracy theory, that turned out to be verifiably 100% true. 800 848 Additionally, if there's something that is a conspiracy theory now that you think may turn out to be true, call me. 800 it's funny, my friend Jeffrey Goldstein, whose engagement party I thought was last Saturday, and uh, it turns out it's this coming Saturday, and I'll be there in in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey. He came over for my little giant party on Saturday night, and we were talking about Davos, and I said something to the effect of, I'm so um, tired of hearing about all these different conspiracy theories related to Davos, and he said, well – how many of these conspiracy theories turn out to be true? And I said, well, you know, okay, that's a fair point. And he says further that how can things keep being labeled as conspiracy theories if they keep pro- getting proven to be true? I said, that's a point. Eight hundred eight 848 9222 I'm going to mention a couple that have been proven to be true. And then I'm going to mention a couple that I think may turn out to be true in the future. One conspiracy is the horror of Project Sunshine that the government was selling, excuse me, was stealing dead bodies to do radioactive testing. And here's the truth the government was stealing parts of dead bodies because they needed young tissue. They recruited a worldwide network of agents to find recently deceased babies and children and then take samples and even limbs each collected without notification or permission of the more than 1500 grieving families the world only woke up to the horrific history of project sunshine a half century late a half century later and there are still a lot of mysteries about it the conspiracy of bad booze the conspiracy was that During Prohibition, the government poisoned alcohol to keep people from drinking. And here's the truth. Manufacturers of industrial alcohol had been mixing their product with dangerous chemicals for years prior to Prohibition. But between 1926 and 1933, the federal government actually pushed manufacturers to use stronger poisons to discourage bootleggers from turning the alcohol into the moon into moonshine. And unfortunately, that didn't stop the bootleggers or their customers. And by the end of Prohibition, more than 10,000 Americans had been killed by tainted booze. Um, the th- conspiracy theory of the first lady that ran the United States. The theory was that a stroke rendered Woodrow Wilson incapable of governing and his wife surreptitiously stepped in. The truth is, Wilson did suffer a debilitating stroke towards the end of his presidency, but the government felt it was in the country's best interest to keep things quiet and the public didn't learn about the stroke for months during which time his wife Edith was making most of the executive decisions. How about government mind control? We've spent a lot of time talking about this. The CIA was testing LSD and other hallucinogenic drugs on Americans in a top-secret experiment on behavior modification. Now we know. This program was known as MKUltra, and it was real. How about the theory about the Dalai Lama's impressive salary? The conspiracy was that the Dalai Lama, yes, that Dalai Lama, was a CIA agent. The truth is this, that the Dalai Lama was pulling in A six-figure salary from the federal government, the U.S. federal government, during the 1960s. According to declassified intelligence documents, he was earning $180,000 in connection with the CIA's funding of the Tibetan resistance. The idea was to disrupt and hamper China's infrastructure. So... The point is, and I have a bunch of others that I looked up online in preparation for this segment, but I'd rather hear from you at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. A lot of times, things that are meant to be marginalized, things that are cast aside as conspiracy theories, turn out to be true. Can you think of any others? 800-848-9222. And what do you think will turn out to be true? One, I'll just mention, um, you know it was the covid lab leak hypothesis was very much considered a conspiracy theory and now it is becoming readily accepted and I, I don't know that we've seen smoking gun proof that it is true but it there does seem to be some very credible people that at least believe it's a possibility 808489222 uh we are to assuage my guilt from keeping this guy Charles waiting on hold yesterday and on Friday and not getting to him. We are implementing a new system today where I'm going to whoever has been holding the longest. Now, the re- one of the other reasons that I don't like this system, quite honestly, is because this leads to people that are off topic being heard. So obviously, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I committed to this system for the day. So I'll stick with it. But um, I would appreciate it if you could call and be topical. I would appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Although I have no way to enforce that. Robert is in Sussex. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Hi, Robert. Okay.
14: Um, do you want the uh, weights and measures of the metric system or conspiracy theory?
1: I'll take conspiracy theory.
14: Okay. Uh, there was a lot of talk amongst people, just generally, about why COVID. Now, I asked a lot of people what they thought of it. One of them was a clerk who works at a Seven Eleven, A simple man from Pakistan. And he's a farmer. And what he said was to reduce fertility. World population, because we're not really going to reduce our use of fossil fuels much at all. So the only way to reduce that is to reduce the population
1: now and in the future. All right. So and you think that's going to turn out to be true? Yes. Well, we will see where that goes, Robert. Thank you. I'm uh, I'm still skeptical that that was the reason behind it. Here's one that I'll give you, and if you want to weigh in, you can do it. 800-848-9222. Um, the theory was that the FBI was spying on John Lennon. And the truth is, they most certainly were. Like a lot of other counterculture heroes, Don- John Lennon was considered a threat. Anti-war songs like Give Peace a Chance didn't exactly endear John Lennon to the Nixon administration. So in 1971, the FBI put John Lennon under surveillance. And uh, the in 1957, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, they met at a party just yards away from their meeting place was the grave of Eleanor Rigby. Now that was, you know, um, this is just a fun bit of trivia, but John Lennon was absolutely under government surveillance, as were a number of other people. Um 848 the Gulf of Tonkin, August 2nd, 1964. The theory was that it was faked to provoke American support for the Vietnam War. And the truth is, by the time news reached American ears, The facts surrounding the North Vietnamese attack on the American naval ship Maddox were already very fuzzy. And declassified intelligence documents have since revealed that the Maddox had provided support for South Vietnamese attacks on a nearby island and that the North Vietnamese were responding in kind, according to the U.S. Naval Institute. So the event opened the floodgates for direct military involvement in Vietnam. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Gregory is in Ohio. Hello, Gregory.
10: Hello, Frank. Uh, eggs are $4 a dozen here in Ohio. Sorry? Eggs are $4 a dozen.
1: Well, that's a pretty in good Ohio. price, even for organic?
10: These are. My buddy got 200 hens.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Well, maybe we can work out something.
10: No, well, I tell you. The chickens don't like to lay in cold weather.
1: Oh, okay. Well that's good. You have
10: to raise you have to raise the the heat up and it costs a lot of money because if you don't raise the heat up then they, they eat twice as much food to stay warm. They don't want to lay eggs.
1: Well that's good to know. I uh I didn't you know, I'm not an expert in chickens, um, but uh I know that I enjoy the eggs that they produce.
10: I want to tell you about sports betting. What a rip-off. I went, online. I went online and opened up an account for sports betting. They want to know your social security number. I said, what do you have to have my social security number for? For identification. Well, it was really hard to do that. Anyway, when you put money in your account, it goes overseas. Is that crazy?
1: Well, it's I certainly uh, problematic. I, I wouldn't be comfortable with that at all, Gregory. And well, thank you. Everybody- Thank you for the call. 800-848-9222. You know, in keeping with both of the subjects that we were just discussing, um, I just got an email here, and we're going to go through all your emails in uh, in a bit, but I'll, I'll just mention this one. It's from Julia. She writes, uh, maybe this can give some insight into the egg prices. She writes, almost all new vaccines going forward will be new technology, MRNA, that do not require eggs to manufacture. And she says the U.S. keeps millions of chickens in secret farms to make flu vaccines, but their eggs won't work for the coronavirus. So that's interesting. So maybe there's an opportunity to get some eggs from these chickens that are from these vaccine chickens. And I'm not even totally joking. 800 if you want to comment. Uh, eight open lines if you have a conspiracy theory that you think – has been proven true or that will be. But in the meantime, what I'm going to do is follow the example of Isaac Saul here from the tangle and not dismiss things that sound crazy as just a conspiracy theory. I, if something I don't believe is true, I'm going to say why I don't believe it's true, but uh, I don't think any idea, no matter how crazy, whether it's that there are lizard people walking among us or that the earth is flat, I don't think any idea should be dismissed on its face. Let's look at everything. What what is the harm in that? No matter how crazy it happens to be. You know what was a conspiracy theory not long ago? It's that big tobacco knew that cigarettes caused cancer. And a lot of people said for years that the tobacco companies buried evidence that smoking is deadly. And the truth is that at the beginning of the 1950s, research was showing an indisputable statistical link between smoking and lung cancer. But it wasn't until the late 90s that Philip Morris even admitted that smoking would cause cancer. So um, there's a lot of others out there as well. If you, And if you have thoughts about any, give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800 800-848- 848 9222. Two, two. So, whether it's the Dalai Lama, whether it's government mind control, whether it's John Lennon, whether it's bad booze, there are a whole bunch of aspects of conspiracy life that have turned out to be true. I would say, and I know people may take issue with this, that the conspiracy theory challenging the idea that Martin Luther King Jr. was killed only by the lone gunman James Earl Ray. I would say that that has been proven true when it was proven when it was determined by a jury in the 1990s that Martin Luther King was killed as a result of a conspiracy. Now, I know uh, there are a lot of people that take issue with that particular jury verdict, but still, I mean, a jury jury verdict has got to count for something, doesn't it? By the way, I'm going to go through your mail in uh, just a little bit. And if you would like to uh, email me and get your email heard you can do so frank dot at wabcradio.com. dot com. Uh that's Frank dot M O R A N O at wabcradio.com. dot com. Meantime let me say hello to Patrick in Huntington. Hello, Patrick.
2: Good morning, Frank. Morning. How are
1: you doing? Doing great. I'm not
2: sure if this uh conspiracy but back in the early twenty first century the US government was giving um US manufactured weapons to Mexican cartels with the uh, point of trying to, you know, uh, raise up the gun violence to help the anti-gun cause in this country. And, I don't remember, I think it was called Operation uh, well, was Crossfire bad, Hurricane, I think it was called.
1: Well, and, and so was that the gun running scandal that became uh, Fast and Furious?
2: Oh, Fast and Furious, that's right. I'm sorry, I was thinking of it. Yes, yeah, Fast and Furious. So I don't know if we could consider that a conspiracy theory. I'm not sure, even though it was proven true, though, right? We had a. Uh... We had a Border Patrol agent die from that.
1: Yeah, well, I guess. No, there was no no question that, um, you know, that that occurred. I guess the question is uh, the the jury might still be out on what the real motivation for that was, whether if it was to increase gun violence so that they could implement uh, gun control. Is that what you're saying, that that was it was a concerted strategic effort?
2: That's what I believe it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. So I don't know if we can consider that a conspiracy or not. If well, that I, your... Yeah,
1: I guess I guess, you know, we'll see what happens if that, uh, you know, I, I guess um, if they end up passing some sort of sweeping gun control measure, maybe some folks will be able to uh, to point to that. I, I'm skeptical on that. But, you know, we'll see. I, like I said, I'm not dismissing anything out of hand. Right. We'll uh, indulge. We'll explore all of these. Crossfire Hurricane, by the way, had to do with the – and I knew that sounded familiar. That had to do with the uh, Russia hoax, uh, the uh, the investigation, I should say, into the links between the Trump campaign and the um, Russian government, which they came to call Crossfire Hurricane, which a lot of people call the uh, Russia – what do, you, what do you even want to refer to it? The collaboration between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. A lot of people call that a conspiracy theory. Greg Kelly, among others, has called it a conspiracy theory. 800-848-9222. We're going to go through the mail in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's other side of midnight with Frank Murano.
1: This is a uh, tiny dancer. No, not Tony Danza. Uh, by Elton John. You know who is a huge Elton John fan? Donald Trump. Donald Trump. He used to play this song uh, before all of his events, including his rallies. And uh, I think uh, he was invited to perform at Donald, at President Trump's inauguration, and he declined the invitation. And. Um, I've uh, gotten to meet President Trump long before he was president many times, and I remember I was with he and Melania the day after they had seen Elton John perform here in New York. I think it was at Madison Square Garden, and Trump was still just going on and on. This is about seven years ago, at um, maybe eight years ago, how incredible a performer Elton John was, and you could tell it was sincere. So uh, he is, uh, and a lot's been written about this, uh, that uh, he is a big Elton John fan. We're going to go through the mail in just a minute, 800 uh, 848 But uh, in the meantime, if you have a conspiracy theory that has been proven true, or that you think will be proven true in the future, tell me uh, what it is. Pete is on Staten Island. Hello, Pete.
6: Hey, Frank. Yeah, there's one going around. I don't necessarily believe it, but I'm hearing it from a lot of my friends that gamble. You know, with that football injury to that young man that uh, happened, uh, you know, they're talking. Like, there's no uh, interviews, live interviews with him. You would figure that all the news media would, you know, have like 60 Minutes and all shows like that. And there's nothing. So they're all saying, well, he isn't in that good a shape now, you know, and that the the thing was blurred out of him from the window that you really couldn't see him that well. But, you know, like I said, I'm not, you know, my gambling friends, they're also the type that if they lose, oh, the game was fixed, you know, so what am I going to tell you? But that's what's going around the area around the circle that I hang out with.
1: All right. Well, we will see, uh, Pete. Uh, I, um, You know, uh, look, I'm skeptical, but like I said, we'll see. Any conspiracy theory that has been proven true, what do you think? 800-848-9222. Ed is on Staten Island. Hello, Ed.
2: Hey, Frank. Hey. The South Carolina primary that uh, Biden went from third to first, the the conspiracy theory is that that was the first time Dominion Software cheated.
1: Oh, interesting. I had heard the theory about, um, and and again, uh, that's one that has not been proven true, but I had heard the theory about uh, Iowa and Pete Buttigieg and uh, him winning there and how that might have been a voting machine situation. But uh, so far, that's not anything that uh, that has been proven uh, true. All right. Without further ado, there are a number of folks that uh, have sent us some written correspondence. Those include... You know, when Obi Murray was here, he could not believe that I just read the re- the letters at random on the air without even screening them first. Now, of course, that's very dangerous. Of course, that uh, that could be lead to me saying stupid things uh, or risk being boring, which is even worse than being stupid. But that's what's so great about this show. You just don't know what you're going to expect from minute to minute, moment to moment, segment to segment, day to day, hour to hour. Let me begin with the world of Twitter. Brandon has written to me on Twitter, you can find me on Twitter, and said, this is just today, are you a Luciferian? They're already trying to make the world one currency, one language, and you're trying to help it along with one system of measurement? I'm more mad at you for this than for leaving all your viewers to die in a nuclear holocaust. All they need is to switch the system over here, changes to the euro, then you got Armageddon coming. You say you are running for Jesus, sometimes I wonder. Thank you, Brandon. And, you know, that's the thing with written word. You can't tell if it's shtick or if it's sincere. I have no idea. All right, this is uh, via emails from Luke. Subject, learning to walk. Morning, Frank. I couldn't sleep. So Carmine is learning to walk at 14 months. Hope it's not too early. Apparently, toddlers get bow legged but grow out of this condition as they grow older. On, an, on another note, do you think Carmine will smoke cigars? Remember Carmine the Cigar Galante. Have a good one, Luke G. Yes, it did not work out too well for Carmine Galante. All right. This is, a, this is a nice book here, uh, Hardcover. And I've seen the price of hardcovers lately. They, uh, they're not great. And nice typewritten note inside here. Wow. It's from uh, The book is Baseball's Bastards, Flawed Diamonds of Our National Pastime. Uh, it's by Harvey Rosenfeld. Hi, Frank Moreno. Since my wife of 52 years died two years ago, oh, it's, uh, I have looked for a radio partner during early morning hours. Your other side of midnight has filled the need. Your program has also brought back memories. My father's lone employee was the affable Carmine. Your heritage also brought back memories of 1972 when I was involved in the Jewish community campaign for the charismatic, um, the charima- charismatic Ms. Mayoral. Hopes ended with the disclosure that he took the Fifth Amendment to protect his daughter. I've included two Mario Biagi pins. Knowing your baseball interest, I've attached my recently published book, Baseball's Bastards, was a labor of 14 years. Please read the intro regarding the title. Well, that's uh, very nice, Harvey. Thank you. I'm going to look at this book, and maybe we'll have him on to talk about it as we get close to baseball season coming back. Uh, This is an email here from John, who writes, You haven't given your listeners a good reason why we should switch over to the metric system. Well, I think I did, but if I didn't, let me repeat that. I I think the good reason is that it's simple. It's simple and consistent versus the inconsistent and uh, really odd system of weights and measures we've got now, this English system. So I think the simplicity is the reason to switch over. Another email here uh, from our friend Ellen, who is the most astute observer of this show. She writes, uh, hi, Frank, I really enjoyed your interview with Michael Medved. He addressed all the topics you asked him about, crime, increased polarization, the election, the Jewish vote, and even the Oscars, in a thoughtful and common-sense manner. Once again, another home run for you, Frank. My only suggestion is that it could have been a bit longer. Perhaps you could have him on again. It was a terrific show. Thanks once again for ruining my sleep. Well, thanks for listening, out. All right, uh, this is, um, ah, this is from somebody named Ed. This is my kind of letter. This uh, this includes a cigar, a nice cigar, an Arturo Fuente, which is what I like to smoke. My friend Johnny P. brought me an Arturo Fuente the other day. A nice note here, Frank, sorry I missed New Year's Eve Eve on a heater at the Borgata craps table. They invited to dinner with high roller friend. Enjoy the cigar, Ed. That very nice Ed. Thank you. I think this is. Uh, I know exactly who this is from. So thank you, Ed. Appreciate you listening and thank you for sending the cigar. That's uh, boy, that is awfully nice. All right, um, this is long. I may abridge this. This is from someone named Joseph. Uh, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on that email because it's just a little too, uh, just a little too lengthy. All right, this is from David. Good morning, Frank. Great show today, as always. It's fun to hear about your son and his rapid growth, climbing, etc. And that's the purpose of this short note about safety. I'm passing along a few things from experience just to underscore what you can already anticipate. You'd be surprised at how easily a young boy can injure himself in simple accidents in the household, especially while climbing and reaching for things. I was the grandpa by marriage of a young one like yours. He loved to climb. But as he so quickly grew and learned and became so good at it, my wife and I became quite concerned for his safety. Replacing any glass furniture as his weight might have actually overturned some of it. And any glass items that he may reach uh, for on shelves or on the kitchen countertop had to be moved. Yes, he could reach them as soon as he learned to stack things to climb on. And as he grew bigger so fast... As he could climb higher, he certainly could have fallen harder. And anything that looked like something he could reach for while climbing, well, like a pot of boiling water or a hot pan, which he couldn't have known the dangers of, were, of course, always quite strictly guarded to the point that I insisted that he not be in the kitchen at all while we cooked. I would even shut off all electric power to the appliances when not in use at the circuit breaker box, except, of course, the refrigerator. That may sound overly protective, but he's quite healthy and much older now, a younger man. Yeah, I mean, look, we've taken, I think, most of the common sense precautions. We've uh, plugged our um, electrical outlets with plastic so that he can't get and get into there. But uh, and we don't let him, you know, do things that are going to be clearly a hazard to him. But I think um, one of the things that I don't want to do is turn this into a. Um, a totally childproof house where he's incapable of getting hurt. I think it's important for him to learn that if you climb over the edge of a sofa, you're going to fall and hit your head. So I think there's a balance between letting a child make his own mistakes and um, and not allowing him to, God forbid, uh, kill himself. So absolutely, I uh, totally appreciate that. This is an SMS text message from a 410 area code. I think this is about the metric system. And this person writes, absolutely not, and I denounce you. Okay, there you go. Uh, This is from Facebook. Fred writes, great interview with Bill Burns. I have a story about a contact I had, I think being a UAP contact, in Roosevelt, New York, at 10 years old, that I'm going to write him about. Thanks, Frank. Um, And then he signs off just living after midnight. This is a thank you note here from Bob Wolf for having him on the show. Uh, That's always very nice, Uh, very kind guy. Um, Linda writes on the subject of sunsets and sunrises. Hi, Frank. I agree 100% with the study regarding sunsets and sunrises. I always, I will always remember an endearing moment that I witnessed while walking towards a department store just as the sun was setting behind me. A couple and their little boy, who was being pushed in a stroller, were walking uh, from the store. The parents appeared very angry with each other and were yelling quite loudly. What I noticed was their little boy. He had the biggest smile, was kicking his feet in excitement as he looked up towards the sky. I turned around to look at what he was looking at, and it was a most beautiful sunset. It was such a sweet moment. What a shame that the adults missed it. The little boy's reaction and the appreciation of a sunset was priceless. I'm glad she shared that. That is awfully, awfully uh, nice. I appreciate that. All right. Um, this is a Facebook message, and you could find me on uh, facebook.com slash fan if you want to message me through there. Sometimes it takes me a day or two to get to the Facebook message. This is from Brian, who writes, Dear Frank, I just realized that you look very much like the actor Bruno Kirby. He was in The Godfather Part Two. I hope you take this as a compliment, and I mean it as a compliment. I enjoy your show, The Other Side of Midnight, and I appreciate your patience and kindness to the callers. Um, well, that's, you know, I think Bruno Kirby is a handsome guy. I've heard that before, actually. Uh, he, of course, was great in the uh, Marlon Brando film with uh, Matthew Broderick, The Freshman, uh, which uh, I, th- I enjoyed very much. So, um, And I appreciate that Brian noticed that I uh, was kind to the callers. Meanwhile, you uh, contrast that to some of the other uh, correspondents that I've gotten on social media. I posted a picture of myself with uh, four former chairmen of a political party yesterday. And Frank Gonzalez writes on uh, Facebook, what a curt jerk blank you can be to some callers. You have no talent and a giant ego. You will be off ABC in one year and divorced in five. Loser! Exclamation point. My response, I definitely appreciate the feedback, Frank. Thank you for listening. Now, I wasn't sure if he was saying I would be divorced five years from now or five years from the beginning of my marriage. Either way, I'm hoping that he's wrong. Uh, This is from, oh, this is a nice note. This is a letter here. Dated Christmas Eve. From J.J. Kennedy. Dear Frank, thank you for playing the the Christmas classic, It's Christmas. I heard through the radio DJ Grapevine that you played it. Usually my insomniac husband, Charlie, catches it, but for some reason, he missed it this year. If I had a heads up, I would have listened and called in. There's always next year. Wishing you a wonderful Christmas season and a totally sweet 2023. By the way, all the proceeds from It's Christmas go to charity. If it makes more than a dollar, I'll donate it to Tunnel to Towers. I support this organization with my own funds. Thank goodness it doesn't rely on the song. But truly, thank you for your support with the song. I know we are both John Gambling fans, and we really had fun producing it. Well, that is awfully nice. Thank you, uh, J.J. Kennedy. Uh, This is from uh, Kate in Chautauqua. Hi, Frank. Discovered your broadcast about three years ago. I find it very interesting and informative. Well worth listening to. Anyway... The Buffalo Bills were finally playing like they used to in the 1990s when I stumbled upon the other side of midnight. I remember looking forward to each hour's news report during your Monday morning program. I wanted to hear the infamous WABC Sports announce that the Bills had won or lost. But alas, if memory serves, the iconic radio station only told me about the Giants and or the Jets, which is ironic. Neither team plays in New York, but the Buffalo Bills do. And yet I don't remember ever hearing their scores during the regular season. I could be wrong, but dot, dot, dot. So uh, this was before the Bills lost this weekend. So maybe during the early morning hours of this Monday, since the Giants played as if they were the modern-day version of David and Goliath. Well, I would disagree with that, by the way, because you remember who won that battle of David versus Goliath? If the Giants won, they would have been playing like David. Maybe WABC will res- will report the game results about the only team that actually plays in the great state of New York. Of course, if the Bills lose, I won't be Bills lose, I won't be offended at all if they are again ignored by your sports department. Ha ha! Thank you, Kate. Yeah, uh, this is going to be something that I think Kenneth owes an explanation to folks on. And um, I don't know. Uh, hopefully, next year, if Kenneth's still here and the Bills are still playing in New York State. Hopefully he'll get his act together. Hey, this is a, a letter here from Flemington, New Jersey. I don't know. It's not signed, but uh, the, the address is from Flemington, New Jersey. And it is a QA and a with William Shatner. And uh, it's all about, it's an interesting Q&A. So thank you to whoever sent this to me. I will look forward to reading this. I am a big William Shatner fan, and I am hoping to be appearing with William Shatner February 10th and 11th in Flemington, uh, excuse me, not Flemington, in Red Bank, New Jersey, and in Englewood, New Jersey. We'll see where that goes. I don't My know. dear Frank <laughs> Uh, This is from Jerry. Jerry writes, there's a listener gal who I met, visited with. She is so thrilled by your kind of di- deigning to her posts and a kind of elevated status on the Fans and Haters Facebook group. That's real good, Frank. She so deserves it. Nice and smart gal, has a pretty tough life for sure, but it seems you're upset with me as you usually respond to an email with me in one way or another and however so and haven't. So I don't want to reflect on her that we commiserate that I am well liked by her in any way related to what you think of her. Anyway, really good. It's her main thing. Glad for her. Jerry, I don't even know what he's talking about. It sounds like he met someone through the Facebook group. God bless you. Oh, look at this. The, someone from Pennsylvania sent me the same William Shatner interview that somebody else just sent me from Flemington, New Jersey. Oh my God. This is wild. I guess, I don't know if this is from AARP magazine. It doesn't say the publication. But uh, what is the possibility of that, that two people in consecutive letters would send the same print Giuliani I mean uh, uh, Shatner interview speaking of Giuliani I was trying I was getting ahead of myself Denise writes hi Frank is from Friday I am not a fan of Mayor Giuliani's so I only came in on your denunciations good on you I can't stand people who are cruel to animals my god those stupid Florida nitwits your interview with the author of the book on the twilight zone was fascinating and terrific I do commend you. Well, that's nice, Denise. That's someone who's been very critical of me in the past. Uh, June writes, hi, Frank, enjoying your show. Listen to the podcast on the uh, on Friday evening, January 13th, because I called in about 3 or 3.40 a.m. right after you concluded talking about Steve Gutenberg. I wanted to get the podcast to my email so I could show my daughter How I talked about her special birth on radio. As I described how we saw three men and a baby the night before. When I heard your podcast for that time period, my phone call was not included. Maybe it was cut from the podcast. What? Is there a way you can reclaim my phone call to the show and forward that section to my email? Appreciate it. Be well, June. Now, I know June. And I have asked Kenneth to uh, look into this. And I... Sent him that request four days ago. So far, no response from Kenneth. So I don't know, June. Maybe you did something to Kenneth. But um, very suspicious. This is a nice Christmas card here from Alyssa from Manhattan. Very nice. Uh, this I'll just do two more. We'll do one email and one uh, one print. This is from Ken. I had to do a double take, Frank, listening to Anthony Weiner and the Republican Thaddeus Thursday morning. They both spoke out of, and there's a lot of capitalizations which I'll spare you of. Uh, all the doubles and bubble and boths that I'm about to read you are capitalized. They both spoke out of both sides of their m- mouths for what seemed like two hours, or a double session, or yes, both. Talk about double talk. You should have doubled down with both of them, pounded both fists. And demanded that they take a stand instead of waffle on both sides of every single issue, which made for a doubly boring interview. Yawn, yawn. Both of my ears heard nothing but meaningless political gibberish from this tiresome twosome. That was simply too much, Frank. In today's climate of crime and corruption, we must have compelling conviction rather than comatose kumbaya. Weiner will never speak even two words of singular importance He continues to be a split or double personality not worthy of more than two minutes of any two listeners' time. My godfather's name is Thaddeus. Thaddeus. So that's a reason I listened through the interview. I liked hearing it whenever you mentioned his name. It sounded so nice. A good reason to listen to radio. Hey, it's a free country, free speech. So I'm not going to say that Wiener should be canceled, but he has an aberrant quality to his voice. Bad, dangerous, NSFAW. Not suitable for airwaves. Best wishes, Ken, from Manhattan. And then finally, this is a card here from uh, Marianne in Indiana. She writes, Dear Frank, I enjoy listening to your show. A recent topic you announced, a person changed his life by choosing a hobby. I had a hobby, raising horses for horse show competition. The horses are great for your body, soul, and happiness. Once the horses passed, so did my interest. I fell back to my performance on stage, in dance, and singing, dancing, and acting for stage, stage shows, musicals, and films. Recently, I wrote a film during COVID quarantine called The Reunion, and my theater group shows it on their um, their website. I love performing, period. Creating art is a life-enhancing experience for me. I've had the privilege of doing it now for seven decades. Wow. Ciao, Marianne in Indiana. Well, that's great. And I think uh, if people are looking for a hobby, I think that strikes me as good as any other. All right. If your letter didn't get read, hopefully it will be on the next edition of... Another letter
12: from a
0: The Other Side of Midnight. midnight.
1: song today uh, because when my son has been walking all around the house I have been uh, playing all these different walking songs and this is one and sometimes he stumbles and as he's walking and I kind of feel like he's walking like an Egyptian because it's it's kind of got his hands weird and uh, is doing doing his thing uh, hey if you have not done so please join our Facebook group just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters that's M O R A N O Radio Fans and Haters and uh the uh, the the matriarch of our Facebook group Ellen Metzger posted the following a day ad- a day ago I just finished listening to a couple of podcasts of The Darker Side of Midnight. If you're not up on that, that is the pod, the post-show podcast that uh, Kenneth, Alex, Barnard, and Matt Blaze do. Pretty funny, Matt Blaze, Alex, Barnard, and Ken Connolly. And Matt, I know you do a good job. I used to listen to you all the time with Tommy G. Now, what I find suspicious about this is I was looking at this yesterday, and I could have sworn there were three or four negative comments about the podcast. And so I asked uh our illustrious staff here what um you know what's going on here did you guys delete these podcasts? And so far no responses.
13: You mean the comments.
1: The comments. No, the, all the comments are still there. Uh, the see, I'm not comments. seeing them. I have them. I see. So maybe nothing has been deleted. I can all assure right, you. I, right. would ne- I would never I would never Are you kidding me? If I if I the people that that said negative things about the podcast, are the people that always say negative things. That's true. That is so true. if they liked it, then I'd be worried. Well, that's fair. Hey, I did get an email here, and I, uh, I'll i end with this. Ed uh, wrote, Dear Frank, don't waste your valuable time listening to the dark side. It's boring with a lot of gratuitous foul language. Couldn't listen to more than 10 minutes. They tried to satirize you with your Selena Gomez tribute, but it fell flat on its face. On the other hand, I have been listening to your show via podcast since the beginning and truly think you're a talk show genius. Wow. Genius, funny, informative, entertaining, and a very good person. So thank you very much. I appreciate you more than you could know. Thank you, Frank, and God bless your family. Well, thank you, Ed. I, uh, you're welcome. I appreciate you recognizing my genius. I always felt that maybe I would be one of these people whose genius was not appreciated in his own lifetime. Not until, you know, I passed would people go back and listen to these podcasts and say, wow, that, that guy was a genius. But it's glad, I'm glad to see that at least in Ed's brain, he's recognizing my genius now. So there you have it. If you want to check out The Darker Side of Midnight, you can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Or you could just search The Darker Side of Midnight on uh, most podcasts' apps. We'll take your calls in a moment. Until then, keep asking questions.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: Continuing, good morning, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Con- continuing what I just brought up here, I just got an SMS text message from Ellen, who posted that comment about uh, the other side of midnight. And she just sent me a text message, and you can too at 8168 Moreno. Hi, Frank. It's Ellen. I don't see any comments on my post about the darker side of midnight either. Very strange. A conspiracy theory. So something is going on here in terms of whether it's Facebook, whether it's Matt Blaze, or more likely Alex Barnard because he's very sensitive. He's, again... Could, could be. Because I can tell you right now, I did not delete anything. But, you know, I can check yeah, to check. see if something see, was yeah, deleted. See if Alex Barnard did his deletion. Who deleted it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't delete anything, obviously. And I and, did not. So uh, that leaves either Alex Barnard or Philippe. Is is, is Kenneth an administrator? He's not even on he Facebook, is not right? Okay, so we, we know where to go. So Alex is out sick again today. So now I guess he's really sick if he's out two days, right? That's not a Monday morning flu kind of deal, right?
15: Or he heard
13: us talking about it yeah, yesterday. I could see that. And he had a call out to prove that, you know, he's really
1: sick. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk Price is Right in a moment uh, with uh, – Ted Slauson, Ted Slauson was in a terrific documentary that I saw recently. I'll tell you about it in a, in a moment, but uh, there was uh, two, two or three quick pieces of food news that I wanted to share with you. Uh, You know, one of the things that they're experimenting with in New York, it hasn't come to my neighborhood yet, but other parts of New York have been doing this is composting, which I'm all for. I I would, uh, I'd love to set up a compost heap or something, but a new green tech startup, wants us to rethink what we do with our banana peels, pepper tops, and other kitchen scraps. Scraps thrown away in the regular trash often wind up in landfills where they generate methane, which is a greenhouse gas. Landfills account for nearly 15% of human-related methane emissions. That's according to the Department of Agriculture. So there's this new company called Mill, and it launched last week. It's part hardware startup, part subscription service. Listen to this, because I'm thinking of getting this. I'm going to talk with my wife about it today. But customers are sent a bin for their kitchen scraps. The bin, which needs to be plugged into an outlet, dehydrates and mashes scraps into a substance not unlike ground coffee. When the bin is full subscribers can empty the contents into a prepaid mailing box to be sent back to Mill. Mill is working with regulators on plans to turn the resulting mush, the resulting material, into an ingredient for chicken feed, meaning it would be kept in the food cycle rather than ending up in a landfill. Mill's bin syncs with a smartphone app that shows users... How much food they've kept out of the landfill and other interesting data subscription subscription started thirty three dollars a month bin included, so I think that's interesting now, plenty of people already compost their kitchen scraps often through you know city programs or free town programs. However, mills process differs from composting in that the bin's contents don't decompose, meaning there's no composty smell, which can be you know a little offensive so According to the founder and CEO, Matt Rogers, he, re- he told Axios, you're probably thinking, how could it make sense to mail this stuff and heat this material and have that pencil out? And who knows if this is going to work out, but he says it does, including the manufacturing and all the things that go into making the bin, processing and mailing. All the upcycling we do, it saves about a half ton of emissions per household per year. So that's interesting. The consumer pitch, according to this fella, uh, who is the CEO here, is both altruistic. Subscribers feel like they're doing something to fight climate change, and it's financial. In a lot of cities around the country, I know Jersey is like this, you pay for your trash service. And you pay based on the size of the bin. The bigger the bin, the more you pay. So when you can take the food waste out of the trash, you could downsize your bin and save money. The average American household makes between 500 and 600 pounds of food waste a year. But when you take the water out, it gets about 80% smaller. So we're talking about a shoebox or two a month per household. So I'm interested to see where this goes next and if this takes off. Commercial service is a possibility, but homes were the initial uh, target because they account for the most landfill-bound food waste. Very interesting. So we'll see where that goes. Also, in food news, do you remember the frustrations that Elaine on Seinfeld used to experience with always having cake at the office? Happy
12: birthday to you.
16: (laughs) Elaine, cake? Oh, no, thanks. It's Walter's. You know, there are 200 people who work in this office. Every day is somebody's special day.
1: (laughs) Elaine, where are you going? It's Walter's last day. We have to celebrate. It's his birthday and
14: it's his last day? This is other Walter from Returns. Hey, what's going on here? Surprise! Surprise! Oh, guys. (laughs) Elaine, it's my
5: last day. (laughs) Have a piece.
12: All right, pile it on.
1: (laughs) So there is a temptation, depending on the the office, and our office is like this a little bit. We have some pie in the kitchen now, which I noticed... Kenneth uh, did not share with Omar, the doorman yesterday, even though I specifically asked him to. So I looked like a real jerk when I was leaving yesterday. I said, oh, did Kenneth bring down some pie? He said, no, he didn't look at me like I was crazy. He said, who's Kenneth? So um, but anyway, a professor at U- UK's University of Oxford says that bringing cake into the office to share with colleagues <sighs> should be seen as harmful. In the same way as passive smoking, Susan Jebb is a professor of diet and population health and chairwoman of Britain's Food standard a- Agency, and she said people cannot rely on the extraordinary efforts of their personal willpower to forgo eating cake should it be available. That's according to the Times of London. We all think we're rational, intelligent, educated people who make informed choices the whole time, and we undervalue the impact of the environment. If nobody brought in cakes into the office, I would not eat cakes in the day, but because people do bring cakes in, I eat them. Now, okay, I've made a choice, but people were making a choice to go into a smoky pub. Now, I don't think it's the same at all. I mean, I get what she's saying and look, I guess we're partly responsible for this with this pizza thing that we were doing on Fridays. And I think we're going to discontinue that because of everybody's dietary restrictions here. But it's not the same as smoking, because, I mean, when people are smoking, you don't really have a choice not to breathe in the secondhand smoke. That's not the case when it comes to cake. You can forego it and people are not going to judge you uh, at all. Um Channel 5 News in the UK asked people's opinions on cake in the office.
11: A bit of cake goes a long way, definitely. I'm the orderer of all cakes, all fruit, everything that we kind of have in the office. So for me, having a bit of cake with a coffee at four o'clock, what is wrong with that? It's about balance, I suppose, and you need to have positive choices as well. So... I think cake is a positive choice. Well, I I suppose it is, yes. It's just a little incentive, really, to keep going, keep working, have a little sugar rush for the afternoon when you're crashing a little bit.
9: If you want cake, you can have cake. I don't feel like you should be told that you shouldn't have cake, just like you shouldn't be told that you should eat the cake. If the cake's there, have the cake. If you don't want cake, don't eat the cake.
1: So uh, Professor Jeb is being accused of fat phobia, fat shaming, Some people are saying she could even be accused of racism. One professor uh, even advocates discovering doctors who have weight-inclusive practices. I don't question her motives here. I do question her conclusion. I think there's a big difference between smoking and having cake in the office and creating a celebratory environment. I get it, though. I mean, since we have all these snacks in the office, M&Ms and everything, I've put on weight. And um, you you say, all right, don't eat the M&M's. You know, maybe I shouldn't. All right. We're going to talk with Ted Slauson in a moment. He is the star of The Perfect Bid, which is available on Netflix. It's a few years old, but it's still great. Here's the trailer. And I still have all of my name tags and
15: contestant cards from all the tapings I've been to. Pretty sure it was 37 altogether. So, one week, I got into, like, watching Prices Rights from, like, 1973. The same refrigerator-freezer was on four different episodes that I watched, and it was $789 all four times. I'm like, well, see, there it is. There's proof. So that kind of inspired me to start tracking Prices, keeping the records, keeping the records. It's just sad that
9: people don't know the whole story. So I appreciate being
0: able to talk. Without those people, I would have had to work for a living. <laughs> the Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I'm a longtime fan of a bunch of different game shows. Now, most I just kind of casually watch. You see the family feud, and it's fun. Uh, sometimes there's a host that has a great demeanor, and you think, how would you answer to the questions that come up on the survey? And you see where your answers rank on what comes up on the survey. survey. I absolutely love watching Jeopardy! On a daily basis, mostly because I'm trying to figure out if I know the answer or not. That was the same appeal behind who wants to be a millionaire. I was a big fan of that show back in the day. But there was something so special about the price is right for me growing up particularly when it was hosted by Bob Barker. Now, I've gotten to interview Bob Barker a number of times and uh, talked to him about what made that show so special and what made that show unique among game shows. I thought I was a fan of The Price is Right. I'd watch it if I was ever homesick or something or if somebody had it on at the office. The gentleman that you're about to meet took fandom of The Price is Right to a whole new level. A couple of you might have heard me a couple of months ago talking about a documentary which is a few years old now, but I just caught it, and it was just terrific. It's called Perfect Bid, The Contestant Who Knew Too Much. And it's a fascinating story. The story that's told in the documentary is just fascinating. We're going to tell you not every aspect of it because I still want you to see the documentary and not have all the key aspects of the story ruined for you. But we're going to tell you some key aspects of it. But what makes the documentary so great is hearing from the subject of the documentary himself. Because not only is he someone that's incredibly talented, But he's someone that happens to be a very gifted storyteller. And to say he's an enthusiastic fan of this particular game show would be a dramatic understatement. Gives me a great deal of pleasure. to Welcome to the other side of midnight, Ted Slauson, an elementary school math teacher and a Price is Right expert and the star of the documentary Perfect Bid, the contestant who knew too much. Ted, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I feel like I know you already.
15: Thank you, Frank. Thank you for having me.
1: So uh, before we get into your story and your history with The Price is Right, what was your review of the documentary uh, Perfect Bid? Did you find it to be accurate? Did you find it to be mostly accurate? Did you find it to be slanted? Obviously, you're the key component that the common thread that runs throughout the whole documentary. What was your review in terms of enjoyment and in terms of accuracy?
15: It's very, very well done. Um, CJ wanted to tell my side of the story, mostly because the person of interest uh, with the perfect showcase bid kind of got a lot of publicity and went out and said he had come up with the bid on his own, which CJ kind of set out to disprove by showing my story. Um, I I still, I I don't watch it a lot. I catch it, you know, once in a while, but it cracks me up. I still find things in that documentary I didn't notice that he put in there. And kind of the way he uh, wove the whole story together, I think, was just amazing. I
1: I completely agree. And you're talking about C.J. Wallace, the uh, director of perfect bid and by the way if people want to watch this it's available on netflix it's only 72 minutes it's a it's a quick watch and it's a fun watch and it has to do um the incident that you alluded to was a contestant who bid perfectly on a showcase in 2008 and uh, we'll get back to that in just a moment when did you first become a fan of the price is right ted
15: i was i think uh seven or eight years old, it was the very early 70s. The show was probably in its first or second season. Um, I had seen commercials. I hadn't really thought it looked that interesting, but the way I tell it in in the documentary is that I was the youngest of six kids. There was only one TV in the house. We were all home from school. My brothers and sisters kind of decided what we were gonna watch. And so it was kind of forced upon me and I really enjoyed the show so much. It was only 30 minutes back then. But just that one show, I liked it so much that it kind of became um, something I wanted to watch whenever I had the chance.
1: In your opinion, what makes this game show, The Price is Right, different from other game shows in terms of its appeal?
15: Well, I think because it's one of those where anyone can play along, um, you know, if they have prices of things that people are familiar with. I think the fact that they, the pricing games are different every day and you don't see the same set of games, even in within a week, you don't see the same game repeated. And that started even back, I think, as early as the 80s. So there's that variety aspect, but parts of the show are also the same every day. And there's that competitive nature, you know, who's who can bid the closest without going over, who knows the strategies for the games, who's going to bid closer on their showcase at the end.
1: You you talk about how it's a game that people can watch and play at home. That's certainly true. But in your heyday of Price is Right fandom, you took playing at home to a whole new level, didn't you? What did you do?
10: Yeah,
15: my, <laughs> my brother was also kind of a fan of the show in the early days. She I think, was the first one who noticed that, you know, that that TV was on a couple days ago and it was 950 and then and it was 950 this time. They used some of the same stuff. So I started kind of keeping track of the prizes and prices and this was you know years before i was even eligible to be a contestant on the show i never even knew if the show would last long enough for me to be a contestant um so i would keep track of the prizes and the prices and would keep just kind of written lists because this was really before computers were um on the market so around what year
1: are we talking here 78 79 um probably the mid mid to late 70s yeah and uh, i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt so you you keep a written list of all of the prizes and what they would go for on the show. But then that evolved to something a little bit more elaborate, didn't it?
15: Yes. So my, uh, my parents got me a Texas instruments home computer when I was a senior in high school. Uh, It was my biggie Christmas gift that year. And, I wasn't quite sure what it was for because I hadn't really expressed an interest in having a computer, but my dad was like, well, I thought you could use that to inventory my train collection, which is kind of a running joke because it's like, well, gee, thanks for that gift with the strings attached. (laughs) So I learned how to program in BASIC using that computer, and I programmed individual games from the show so I would kind of practice with some of the actual prizes on the show But it was just like a game here and a game there, and the car games, it would just kind of give me a random price, and I'd just see if I could guess it. So those didn't really help. But a few years later, and this was now, I think we're talking 1990, I guess I should back up a little bit. In the mid-'80s, I got a personal computer, then started using, like, an actual database to store all the prizes and prices and all the information, Around 1990 is when I realized that I should really be keeping track of everything on the show. I was really only writing things down and recording things that where they showed the price of something. And it dawned on me because I'd (laughs) I'd had an incident, I think it was 1984, um, where I hit a showcase on the nose at home. It was a shock to me because I wasn't expecting to be on the nose. But what, what I realized later is that the reason I got it was because I knew three of the prices and the fourth one, I just happened to guess it on the nose. It was carpeting. And someone had once told me carpeting was $20 a square yard or $10 a square yard. And when I used that rule, it gave me this perfect bid. And so it dawned on me that when I know some of the prices in the showcases, if I get to the point where there's only one left that I don't know, I can subtract out all those prices from the total and get that missing price. And that's how I started getting prices of trailers and boats and all these expensive things that were usually only ever shown in the showcases. That- and in 1990, um, Game Tech put out this Prices Right computer game. I was so excited to get it. I waited and waited and waited for weeks for it to arrive. And when it arrived, I was sadly disappointed at the quality of the game. Um, There are just so many things wrong with it. It's become like its own urban legend. So I decided I was going to write my own Prices Right program, and I wrote it in GW Basic using the actual prizes and prices from the show. So that was a way for me to start um, kind of practicing with the prices instead of just reading them off of lists and trying to put my thumb over the price and guess the price. This was a way to actually get uh, more practice in learning the prices.
1: Then when was the first time you ended up in the audience of the prices, right?
15: First time I went was in, it was uh, Memorial Day. It was actually the day after Memorial Day in 1984. Uh, my friend Dee, who I've known, I've known her since I was a kid, We went on a trip to Los Angeles, we decided, well, I decided (laughs) that I wanted to see the prices right because I was 18 finally, and I wanted, you know, I'd waited all these years, and so that was the first time, and then it became kind of a yearly thing um, for a few years, and then I started going on my own. I would always go with like a friend, um, or my sister went a few times with me, but it got to the point where I started just going on my own when I had time.
1: How many times were you in the audience of the show before you ended up as a contestant yourself?
15: My 24th time in the audience was the time I was chosen as a contestant.
1: 24th time. So uh, if people yeah. think that uh, they can just show up and there's a good chance that they're going to be uh, selected <laughs> to be on the show, the, the more likely scenario is you're going to have to go a couple of dozen times before you get selected. Right.
15: Right. Back when the audience was that big, definitely.
1: When uh, you would go just as a uh, as an audience watcher before you got to be on the show itself. I'm wondering if you can describe uh, Bob Barker and kind of his interaction with the audience off stage. Anything that uh, people might not see who were just watching it on television. So
15: Bob knew. Obviously, he knew how to um, handle contestants, how to bring the best out of them, how to make things fun. He also knew how he knew the importance of keeping the audience interested and so during the commercial breaks, he would talk to the audience he would ask if people had questions um, some of his stuff if you saw if you were there multiple tapings, you would see kind of the same jokes, which was funny they're still funny, sure you know, even when you see them a few times but Um, he He always knew how to kind of keep the audience up. And the way they run that show, at least the way they ran it back then, they would try to do it as if it were live to tape. And so the lights would go down after the first game was won or lost. It would seem like it was just a few seconds and the lights would come back up and they'd be ready to go on. And it was... Amazing to think of all the stuff they were moving around backstage and setting up on the stage in this record amount of time to keep the show running. And it wasn't, it was unusual if you were, if it took more than an hour to take a show, it almost always took about an hour to get through the whole taping
1: you finally end up on the show uh but uh you would befriend a lot of people in the audience that you happen to be sitting next to or standing in line next to uh while you were waiting to get in and you had no hesitancy given your expertise and uh spending a lot of time kind of memorizing the prices of various items you had no hesitancy helping out some of the contestants who were on the show, right?
15: That is correct and I always felt like, you know, I put all this time into being prepared, if I'm not going to get picked, I may as well at least help anyone who is down there and, you know, and they a lot of times people don't necessarily know who to listen to cuz um, everyone's
1: shouting and that whole thing.
15: Right, and Rod Roddy used to say in as part of his warm-up It could be, you know, he'd ask the audience, will you all help uh, the contestants? And everyone yells yes. And he says, how easy could it or how much easier could it be? Just pick out the one out of 300 screaming voices and you'll win in contestants row.
1: How many people would you say you helped out that actually you were shouting the answers to and uh, they actually listened to you? How many people ballpark?
15: Oh, wow. One, two,
17: three, four,
15: five, six, seven. It's probably at least, I would say, between 15 and 20 ballpark.
1: Wow. Wow. Now, of all those folks, some um, gave you a little bit of a credit on the show, gave you a little shout out or uh, would give you a high five as they were uh, running out of the audience or something along those lines. Did anybody who you helped win a nice prize, did anyone ever express a great deal of gratitude in terms of wanting to take you to dinner or give you a little (laughs) cash gratuity or something along those lines?
8: So of course the,
15: the funny story that's in the documentary is the day that um, I yelled out the price of the first item up for bids. And it happened to be before anyone else said anything. And even before Bob Barker had a chance to explain to the contestants what they were supposed to do. And so he you know pointed me out and said that you know i had no chance of winning the prize but then when he pulled the price tag out of the sleeve and realized i was on the nose he had me stand up and one of the contestants on that episode her name was susan she won the third item up for bids with a perfect bid which she got for me and then bob made a whole running joke about how i'd won a little prize on the prices right and we were going to have this dinner date dinner date never happened but uh, never say never it's 2023, you never know what happened this year. Um, You laugh, just wait. It could be in the works. You never know. Um, And there was a contestant, this was in 2003. My uh, family, 10 people from my family, myself included, went to a taping. Um, We were having a whole family uh, kind of reunion. Uh, We were about to get on a cruise. But ten of us went to the show. My dad got picked uh, next to last contestant. Saddest story of all, I could not get him out of contestant's row. I only had two chances. They brought out something I had never seen, and then they brought out a barbecue. The price had gone up, and I was thinking of a different barbecue. Mm. But a different contestant on that show who we'd met because she was very she was. Uh, third or fourth in line and we were our group started at number five and went through number 14 because we got there fairly early she was an eskimo from alaska and she got up on stage and played the game on the spot which they don't that game didn't last a whole long time but i helped her win the car after the show she wanted to give me a 50 bill and i told her i was like no no i was like no you need to keep that you're gonna have to pay taxes and no i don't and she tried to give it to my brother, and my brother's like, "Oh no, I'm not involved in this." And then she tried to give it to my sister, and then somewhere in there, I someone called my name, and I got distracted. And her name was Irene. She shoved the the fifty dollar bill in my pocket and turned around and ran. <laughs> I was just like, I didn't want the fifty dollars. But I think I spent it in the casino on the cruise or something. I don't remember.
1: Very nice. It's a shame you couldn't help out your dad. But I guess it's like the cobbler's children who go without shoes, right? Uh, Talking with uh, Ted Slauson, if you are interested in his story or The Price is Right... Or even if you're not interested in the Price is Right, but uh, you want to hear a fascinating story of someone who spends a great deal of time developing expertise in something and channels it in what I would argue is a productive manner. See the documentary Perfect Bid, The Contestant Who Knew Too Much. It is on uh, Netflix. Now, you were very public about uh, the fondness that you had for one particular Price is Right model, Holly, weren't you?
15: (laughs) Yes. Um, she was always my favorite growing up. She came on the show, I think, around uh, 77, um, size so around 11. Um, she always she tried her best to be glamorous. She said she always said Janice Pennington was kind of her role model. She wanted to be glamorous like Janice. But if something was going to happen, it was going to happen to her. And there are just a string of bloopers with Holly and things. And she always made it funny. And then, you know, Bob would always pick on her and say things, you know, uh, how um, clumsy or whatever she was. But uh, so I had made a shirt and I have to admit, I've seen a show that was done in the early 80s and i this may have been where we got the idea because a guy had a shirt similar to mine it said i think it says i'm here to see holly not bob or something Um, but mine actually said i'm here to kiss holly and then it said sorry bob on the back (laughs) and i wore it to the first taping because that was why i got it my sister actually went with me and helped me get it done Wore it to the first taping. The producer was completely unimpressed with me. Um, I was kind of stumbling my way through my little short interview, trying to explain what I, you know, that I was a college student. After that, I would take the shirt with me every time. But I would never wear it. I'd always wear some other shirt. The week that I, the show that I got picked, I had actually been to a taping on Monday and a taping on Tuesday and and stayed for that third day of tapings on Wednesday. And I thought, you know what? I have nothing to lose. I've been here two days already. I'm just gonna wear the shirt and see what happens. So I put I went you know, you can have this little break in the processing where if you or if you're close by, if your hotel's close by, you can go and shower and change and that's usually what I would do put the shirt on, come back to the CBS lot, and people are looking and pointing and whispering about my shirt. And I thought, well, that's a good sign. Then I realized I've got to say something to the producer. I've got to make this stand out because, you know, there's no point in wearing the shirt if, you know, I don't have something to say about it, I guess. So I kind of practiced in my head what I wanted to say. And when it came time to me, for me to you know, talk about myself, said to Phil Wayne, who was the producer at the time who chose the contestants, I said, you know, I'm still on my, I'm still a middle school math teacher. And I'm still on my longest vacation ever. And I said, as far as today goes, forget the refrigerator, forget the new car. This is why I'm here. And I pointed at my shirt <laughs> and I did not expect that he would start laughing. And he started laughing and I didn't know how to take it. It kind of, I froze for about a half second. Cause I thought, is laughter good or is laughter bad? Like, what does this mean? And I think I finished. I don't remember what I said after that. And he was still kind of chuckling, and he said, okay. And he pointed at me and went on to the next person. And I don't know if that point was his secret signal that day to his assistant that, I, that she should be writing down all my details so they could pick me. Um, but, yes, that shirt, I think, helped get me on the show um, I did actually get to kiss Holly. I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you <laughs> tell that part now.
1: No, believe but... me. If uh, if I got to kiss Holly, I'd be I'd be renting billboards <laughs> that uh, that advertise that fact. So uh, you mentioned to the fact that you finally got on the show, and at this point, it seems like uh, Bob, ha- from the two dozen times that you've been there, he's recognized you a couple of times. Uh, maybe Holly and the others have uh, recognized you a few times. And when you finally get on the show, I think most people would assume that you just. Do gangbusters because you've spent so many years <laughs> memorizing the prices to everything. How'd you do when you were on the show?
15: So there is a little bit of luck involved, especially with the wheel. There are there's always that possibility that a price might change. Um, this was before I started using pictures from the show in my database, so a lot of times I had to rely on kind of a little description of the prizes. The first item up for bids was a set of outdoor furniture. It was uh, made by Mallon, and there were three different sets of outdoor furniture that I had in my database at the time. So I picked one of the prices. I think I picked the lowest of the three, but it was not that price. It was a different set. And so somebody else won the first item up for bids. That maybe uh, worked out fine for me because the, person ended up playing for a trip and trip prices were kind of always variable you never quite knew what those were going to be um but the second item up for bids was a recliner that i did know the price of and i was the second bidder so when it came time for me to bid i bid 5.99 when everyone had their bids in the perfect bid bell went off and bob read the price and it was 5.99 so when, (laughs) when i went up on stage he poked fun at me a little bit by saying that you know in the all the 24 times i've been to the show i'd seen the recliner before and i was trying to be modest so i said i think so and he goes you know so and everyone just started laughing um but then i played the punch board which also has an element of luck and i kind of knew that was the game i was going to be playing because they have uh, cue cards and things on the stage and i in my head, I thought, well, it's for money. I mean, you can you, money's always a wonderful prize, especially when it's someone's giving it to you. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if I'd waited another game, I might have been able to play Lucky Seven and win a like a ninety six hundred dollar car. But um, I don't really have any regrets about playing Punchboard. But um, Holly, Holly was a model who was displaying the the little small prizes that you bid on or that you say higher or lower and when she saw my shirt she started laughing bob realized oh i can make a moment out of this so he says well there's holly go ahead and give her a kiss and so he kind of pushed me over and holly came over and we met in the middle and she gave me a peck on the cheek and a hug and then, as we were parting, I started to say something to her, and she grabbed my face and planted a kiss right on my lips, which just <laughs> drives everyone crazy. When I used to show that on the last day of school, my students would always just you know lose it because it was so funny
1: uh, no uh, absolutely. so in terms of the prize that yourself, obviously you won the that you won when you were a contestant, obviously you win the recliner, and then how much did you come away with having played punch bowl?
15: The first hole that I punched was a thousand dollars, and I had a hunch that if I gave a thousand back, you know, trying to get five thousand or ten thousand, that it would be the biggest mistake of my life. So I decided to keep it. It turned out to be the right decision because the amounts just went downhill from there. Um, so I won a thousand on the punch board. I won a hundred for the perfect bid. I won the five hundred ninety nine dollar recliner, and I won uh, the four prizes in punch board. So the total that I won was $1,962. Well,
1: hey, that's uh, not too bad. But uh, for folks wondering why doesn't uh, Rain Man go on the prices right all the time (laughs) and just win all the prizes, the answer is because that even if you know a lot of the prices of what, what everything goes for, there's still an element of luck to it. Right. Right. Uh, So obviously in 2008, uh, there is something that had been unprecedented. Now, Drew Carey is hosting the show and there's a contestant by the name of uh, Terry Nice or Terry Nice, and uh, he bids perfectly on the showcase back in 2008. And there's all sorts of conspiracy theories about what happened. You can see Drew Carey on the show itself saying this is never going to air because he assumed there was some shenanigans going on there. Um, in terms of that guy that did make that perfect bid on the showcase, which I think had heretofore not happened before, what involvement did you have?
15: Total involvement. <laughs> so, Carey see- was um, the... Fourth person to show up for the line in the morning. It was super early. The person who was third wanted to be at a certain place in the line because he knew that person, like that number gets the seat right behind contestants row, and that's where he wanted to be. So he kept letting people go ahead of him. Terry showed up about an hour after I was there. Then more and more more people were showing up. And Terry got on the phone and called his wife, who was still at their hotel. And he said, yeah, you better get over here. Start, they there's starting to get a lot of people. And he hung up. And I said, I hope you don't think I was eavesdropping. I said, but my sister would kill me if I didn't tell you that this isn't the greatest neighborhood. And you really should go over and, bring, and walk over with your wife. And he said, oh. And I said, I'm happy to hold your place. And he goes, really? And I said, yeah, just it's fine. And so he went over. They were back in just a few minutes, and his wife was obviously a big fan of the show. She was one of the – she may be the only person in – at this point, this is my 36th taping, I think. She was maybe the only person in all those tapings who ever quoted prices, and I was impressed that she was hitting everything on the nose. So she knew her stuff. It was grocery items. She knew – She said, you know, the Jelly Bellies are $1.49, and uh, I think it was, I can't remember the other two, but she named off three items and their prices, and they were all in, it's in the bag at the taping we went to later that day, and they were. she was right on all three of them. So that was pretty impressive for me. My opinion, based on what I saw of Terry and how he was interacting, because the couple ahead of me in line, And Linda and Terry, the five of us kind of chatted a lot while we were waiting to get in. I got the impression that Linda watched the show and that the couple ahead of me watched the show. But Terry just seemed to kind of be looking at each of us as we were talking and things were kind of registering, but he wasn't participating. He wasn't saying, oh, yeah, I remember that time when blah, blah, blah happened. Like there was like nothing. So we finally, you know, we go through all the processing and all that stuff and We get into the studio, and Terry was the second contestant called. So I'm right away thinking, well, I'm probably not going to get picked because he's sitting right next to me, and they don't usually pick people who sit right next to each other. But how often, you know, I've been talking with them all day, I can help him win something. The first item up for bids, he didn't get it because it was a, well, he wasn't paying attention to Linda. He didn't look at Linda or me, and the price that I had it at was actually wrong. It had gone up like $100, which was not unusual that a price would change at some point. Um, Second item up for bids was a camera that I didn't have in my database, so I had no clue. But the third item up for bids was the Big Green Egg Barbecue, and it had been on the show for several seasons. It had been $900 for a long, long time. That's the one I thought my dad was bidding on in my head. But anyway, another story for another day. But it had gone up to eleven $1, seventy five. The last time it had been on the show earlier the previous season, like in April, March, somewhere in there. So I told Terry eleven $1, seventy five. He gets it on the nose. He gets the five hundred dollar bonus. But then I steered him wrong in his pricing game because the prizes two exercise cycles somehow I thought it was one exercise cycle and a computer, and the the game was switched. So he had to either keep the prices where they were or switch them. I thought because of the way the prices looked to me, that they should be switched. Turns out I was wrong. And everyone in the audience (laughs) told him to keep them, but he switched them and he ended up losing. Uh, He spun 90 cents on the wheel, so he went to the showcase. So that's how he got to the showcase. Um, He was the runner-up because the top winner was a woman who I helped win a car and went away. Uh, with one chair, she did it on one uh, on her first turn, which is very unusual. And so, at this point, I think they already know something. The people on the show. Um, so the first showcase is a has a karaoke machine, which I know is thousand dollars. It was um, one that I knew because it kept tripping me up when I was running my little guessing program that I had written. That one would come up, and I would think, I don't know the price of this. And it was about the 17th time I'm like, it's a thousand dollars. How hard is this to memorize? It's a thousand. And it had this big tall tower, so I thought I'm going to remember that big tall tower as a one, and that's going to help me remember the one thousand. Second prize was a pool table, which had been twenty eight hundred dollars for a while, and the third prize was the 17 foot high low travel trailer. And I already talked about how. I was able to start deducing prices of trailers and boats and all those big prizes that were in the showcases. So I knew the trailer was $19,943. And so I added it up in my head, Sharon, the top winners trying to decide if she's going to keep the showcase. I told Linda, the price is 23,743. Sharon passes the showcase to Terry. I did a quick double check on my addition and make sure I didn't mess something up because this is not the time you want to mess something up. I said to Linda, 23,743, is that what I said before? And she said, yes. So we started signaling that bid to Terry. And then something in my head said, this isn't going to go over so great if he's on the nose. So I thought, maybe we'll just do 23,500 and he'll still get both showcases. So I started to change my bid that I was signaling. And he was already mouthing the bid that Linda was signaling, so that's when he said $23,743. And things started happening on the stage as soon as that bid was lit up. The producer walked over and was, like, communicating with some other staff members. They did the second showcase, which was four trips, and Sharon placed her bid, and they went to commercial, and it was like the show just (laughs) kind of came to a grinding halt, and... Usually that last segment, that last commercial break is very, very short. They remind you, okay, we're going to show you the prices and someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. We're going to walk over and see their prizes and we're going to they're going to have the cameras on you. So make sure you're applauding and smiling. And it was 15 to 20 minutes in my estimation, although I've heard other estimates as high as 45 minutes. I don't think it was that long until they finally picked up and finished the taping and Apparently, what was happening is standards and practices was brought in, and they were trying to figure out was, you know, did something. um, Was
1: there some cheating going on?
15: Right, right. Did somebody cheat? They had a camera at one point trained right on me, and then it was trained on Linda. I don't remember which order, but uh, it was pretty obvious to me because we were right in the front row, and this camera was right in front of us on stage staring at us. And so I figured, okay, well, they're doing that to, I don't know, to k- keep a record of our faces or something. But uh, they finally started the taping back up, and, you know, Terry read Sharon's bid or Sharon's showcase price. She was less than $500 away, which on any other day, is has a awesome bid. Um, and then he walked over to Terry, and he's just kind of like chuckling and, and muttering. and <laughs> He reads the price, total deadpan. It's right on the nose. The display changes to a zero, and Drew's just like, you got it right on the nose. You win both showcases. So no emotion. And so, you know, the bells are going off. The audience is like, what? (laughs) Like The audience was freaked out.
1: I would think not only because of the accuracy, but because of Drew Carey's lack of response there, which is an indication that something is is wrong. So uh, I do want people to watch the documentary and uh, get a, an idea of the full, full out, uh, fallout. It's called The Perfect Bid, and we're just about out of time anyway, Ted. But let me ask you, though, why do you think... Look, Terry ends up winning the prize, and he's celebrated as this uh, incredible savant, as the winner. Why do you think... He didn't give you any credit when it's clear that the answer that you gave him, which he parroted, was responsible for him getting the perfect showcase.
15: You know, I, I I think probably he thought he would maybe get some kind of notoriety or become famous in game show circles. I'm really not sure what his motivation was. We chatted by email a few times after the taping, and then the next thing I was hearing was him Doing interviews, saying, "Oh yeah, I came up with that bid all by myself." But and,
1: it, when you guys would chat via email, was he at least um, appreciative of the role that you played in in his perfect bid? So the emails are old, so old that I don't
15: have access to them anymore. But what I remember was they were very kind of guarded, like kind of you know he didn't really give me credit in the, even in the emails uh, for any kind of help. That was the other time where someone gave me money. His wife gave me. A wad of $20 bills after the show. And I said, I know you guys need this. And she goes, No, no, we want you to have this. And it was very odd. And I finally just said, Okay, fine. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess he just thought there would be, you know, if he, or maybe the other thing that some people have thought is that maybe he thought if it came out that someone helped him, he would lose all his pride. I think. It. Like, no.
1: I don't think. <laughs> and lastly, Ted, um, you you alluded to the fact that you suspected that it would be a real problem if you gave him the exact number, which you subsequently did, and uh, he gave that number, and that's why you tried to change the prize slightly. Why? Why were you concerned that him bidding the exact perfect amount on the showcase would cause a problem?
15: I'm not sure. I just – I think I thought, you know, if this were something – if a bid – if I know the price and I'm the one in the showcase making the bid, it's one thing, but mm-hmm. if I'm down here helping and I give someone a bit on the nose, that may look to me that I thought maybe that would look more suspicious, but you know, they've always let people help except for when you're playing the clock game, they let the audience help. And, um, you know, as they have themselves said, well, it was our own fault. for using the same prizes over and over. It's like, Fault. how many people have done this in the course of the 50-year history of the show? One. Right. right. One time.
1: Right. Uh, So um, now they have amended how they handle this to avoid a similar situation in the future, right? From my understanding,
15: because I don't really watch the show, but um, they have a lot of trips now in the showcases. I think it's probably unusual that there's a showcase without a trip because it's you know almost impossible to price those, and then they've started adding, like, private jets and all sorts of weird things to the trips that people wouldn't necessarily know how to price. They, for a while, during Season 37, which is when this perfect bid happened, they started bringing in a lot more prizes, and I was tracking them at this point because they had changed the eligibility rules. I was hoping to get back on the show, but it became a chore to keep up with all the prizes and prices because they were bring so many new things in on every show. Mm. And it just, and it got to the point where it was like, I'm not enjoying this anymore. And I wasn't really enjoying watching the show. Um, because, you know, the hosting style is so different now than it was with
1: Bob. Right. Yeah. You know, different strokes for different folks. I'm, I'm sort of in the same boat. Hey, uh, Ted, it's a fascinating story. I want to encourage everybody to see the documentary Perfect Bid. It's available on Netflix, probably some other platforms as well. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, next time you become an expert in a game show, please let me know which it is so I can make sure <laughs> I'm in the audience at the same time.
15: All right, will do. Thank you, Frank.
1: Thank you. Ted Slauson, the documentary, is a, a perfect bid. The contestant who knew too much. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you could give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's midnight. Mother's sign at midnight with Frank Murano.
1: Apparently, it keeps on turning. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Hey, speaking of uh, phones, you may remember the other day uh, I was telling you some strategies that, uh, that I had read about, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, for improving your attention span, and one of them was turning off your phone's notifications. Well, yesterday... I uh, I woke up around three o'clock. I got to sleep a little bit later than I normally do, so my wife and son were very good about letting me sleep a little bit later. So I didn't get up until about three fifteen, and I said, you know, and obviously I had to look after my son for a few hours before I could start working on the show. I said, let me not take my phone off do not disturb mode. Let me leave it in do not disturb mode. I have to tell you, it was so wonderful not to hear my phone ringing and buzzing and notifying and getting text messages. So I didn't turn it on until I left for work around 9 p.m. Those six hours were the most peaceful six hours I've had in quite some time. Your influence counts, so use it.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're
2: running a strange program, y'all. Now,
0: here's Frank Morano.
1: side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. If you're new to our program, welcome to a show which some people say is so captivating, so exciting that it has kept more people awake at night than bad Mexican food. It's a show that other people say is so boring that it serves an incredibly positive purpose in life which is that it is your cure for insomnia. It is a show that uh, if you look at any of the criticism from people not named Ellen in our Facebook group, most of the people who listen to it (laughs) really don't seem to like anything about it. But whatever the case is, we're doing something right because uh, the ratings over the course of the last Two and a half years that we've been doing this show are through the roof, and I thank you for that. Let me ask you, now the first thing you got to know about me is I am not a car guy. I know nothing about cars. I am not a good driver. I have a, a, an abysmal driving record. I don't like cars. I, I'm not, I mean, I like cars in that you need one to get around, but I don't care about cars, don't, uh, have no interest in cars. It's not my thing. So what I'm about to talk about is one of the many subjects, and those of you that are holding, we'll get to you in a moment. Uh, it's one of the many subjects that I speak about but don't necessarily know a great deal about. Uh, but those of you that are on hold, we're going to get to you all because uh, for today and today only, we are implementing what we're calling the Charles Rule, which is I felt bad for this guy who is one of the many people criticizing me on uh, social media because he held on apparently for 25 minutes yesterday. And 45 minutes a day before that. And I didn't get to him either day. Now, I'm sorry about that. I didn't mean to. Uh, and had I known he was holding, I would have gotten to him. But he said, hey, why don't you just go to the people in the order that they come? So there's a reason that we don't do that. But uh, I figured, why not? We'll we'll do him the tribute, at least, of uh, catering to people on a first-come, first-served basis. So there's another Charles on. I don't know if this is the same one. But Charles, Joe, Rick, Pat, we're going to get to you in a moment and everyone else. On any subject that you uh, are interested in that we've covered. 800-848-9222. Sales of huge pickup trucks are sustaining car makers. They are bringing in, and the car industry has had a very tough time the last couple of years. They are bringing in record profits. Yet... Some pedestrian and road safety advocates say that today's massive trucks are a hazard given their size, their weight and the driver blind spot. So it's very interesting. Axios, uh, they looked back over the past 50 years to examine the societal and lifestyle changes behind pickup trucks, ever increasing size. So America has a unique love affair. With pickup trucks, the Ford F-150 has been the best-selling vehicle in the entire country, how long do you think? How long? For more than 40 years. Do you know how impressive that is? For one vehicle, for one anything, to be number one for 40 years? If you look at how tastes change in every facet of life over time. And, and do you think you could be the number one anything for f- best-selling anything for 40 years? I mean, look at a show like The Simpsons. You know, if you watched The Simpsons in the early 90s, you were considered cool. If you watched The Simpsons in the early 2000s, you were considered somebody that didn't get the memo yet, but you probably used to be cool. Now, if you tell people you're watching The Simpsons, people say, well, what, what's wrong with that guy? Um, and the show has largely stayed the same, for better or worse. But it's just an indication of how tastes change over time. By the way, here is what a, if you think this is all a result of marketing, this is what a 2018 commercial, television commercial, for the Ford F-150 might sound like.
14: So Dave here is taking the family up to the lake for the weekend. But without the white knuckles this time. Because this new 2018 Ford F-150 has bliss with trailer coverage. It's brainiac smart. Not only does it watch your F-150's blind spots, it's got your trailer covered, too. One less thing to spoil the weekend. No, it can't make the fish bite, but maybe they'll work on that. This is the new 2018 Ford F-150. It doesn't just raise the bar, pal. It is the bar.
1: I believe that was uh, Dennis Leary there as the pitch man for the Ford F-150. So... It's been, number one, the best-selling vehicle in the country for more than 40 years. But during that time, pickup trucks – and I've never owned a pickup truck. I've driven a pickup truck. It's fine. And uh, my friend Tommy Barlotta, I believe, is going to lend me a pickup truck so I can take my Aunt Camille's refrigerator that she's gifting Rachel and I, which she's not using anymore. It's one that she keeps in her basement, which we could use actually. But I have to enlist my brothers and maybe a brother-in-law or two in uh, terms of uh, carrying it. So anyway the, in the 40 years that the Ford F-150 has been the best-selling vehicle in the country, pickup trucks, including the Ford F-150, but all pickup trucks, pretty much, the better-selling better ones, which are keeping the car industry in business right now, they have become bigger, bulkier, and more high-tech. In the 1980s, about half of pickup trucks were categorized as small or midsize, But by the 2010. Small pickups had nearly vanished as Americans increasingly bought into the big truck lifestyle. As pickups transitioned from workhorses to lifestyle vehicles, their design shifted accordingly. Cabs expanded to accommodate more passengers while beds shrank. The first generation of Ford F-150s was 36% cab and 64% bed by length. By 2021, the ratio had flipped with 63% cab and 37% bed. So survey data from the vehicle research firm Strategic Vision shows a third of today's pickup owners rarely or never use their truck for hauling including from my Aunt Camille's refrigerator, while two-thirds say they rarely or never use it for towing. Instead, experts say, according to Axios, is not me saying this, Axios, that much of the big pickup mania is being driven by consumers' self-image. Alexander Edwards, who's a strategic vision researcher, said, quote, Today... Personality and imagery are playing an even more important role in how consumers choose which truck is right for them. So now when we're seeing the sales of the pickup truck sustain the automobile industry and we're seeing sales of the pickup truck grow and get an even bigger market share. And we're seeing the pickup truck get bigger and bigger over time. I'm going to ask you the same question that uh, Larry King's producer said was the most important question he ever asked anybody. And it's my favorite question to ask anybody. And that question is, why? What, What is it about America that has us in love with the pickup truck? Why is the pickup truck getting bigger, even while the uses of the pickup truck for conventional pickup functions like hauling or towing seem to be used less and less? That's my twofold question. Why? Why are we in love with the pickup truck and why is it getting bigger?
0: A question. Since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited Question.
1: the firm surveys owners each year the firm strategic vision surveys owners each year about the character traits they associate with their vehicle and two words set f-150 owners apart what do you think they were powerful and rugged those were the two words one result that people are concerned about though of these supersized trucks is what they say is a greater risk to pedestrians and other drivers. Drivers of today's trucks sit much higher, and they say that creates a blind spot where small children or wheelchair users might be hidden from view. Additionally, pickups' weight has increased by 32% between 1990 and 2021, meaning they strike pedestrians with far more force, plus the Tall front of a truck strikes pedestrians in the torso or head, which is obviously home to some pretty vital organs, whereas the lower hoods of cars typically strike pedestrians in the legs, and you can generally survive some sort of a leg industry. Pickups also tend to be more dangerous in collisions. Between differently sized vehicles, car drivers are two and a half times more likely to die when colliding with a pickup as compared to another car. So Ford says that a lot of this is rubbish. They say that safety is a top priority and they point to safety related technologies like uh, pedestrian detection sensors or Automatic emergency braking. We uh, we have an SUV. It's a very small SUV, but it has a lot of this. If you're uh, going, driving straight into something, the car will stop automatically. And also the 360-degree cameras. Uh, a lot of this now comes standard in all these pickup trucks. Other pickup manufacturers have similar features. The 2022 F-150 earned a top safety pick rating from the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety and earned good or superior ratings in various crash tests, including those with other vehicles. So while they've probably maxed out in terms of size, pickup trucks are still evolving to keep up with Americans changing lifestyle. Some of them are now going electric. I think my uh, co-brother-in-law, James, has an electric pickup truck. Many are offering capabilities and bonus features that aren't available from gasoline or diesel trucks, like better torque, faster acceleration, and the ability to power a worksite, a campsite, or a tailgate party without burning gasoline. So, I'll ask you the question, why? What is it about pickup trucks? Why do we love them? 800-848-9222. Uh, we are implementing our first hold, first air. We need to catch your name for this Policy. We're not sticking with it, but we're implementing our first-hold-first-air strategy of rewarding whoever's been on hold the longest. And someone who has been holding a whopping 107 minutes is Charles in Queens. Hello, Charles. Hi, good morning. Morning. By the way, you do know I'm not
18: the Charles of Charles Rule, right?
1: Yeah, I'm aware of that, Charles. You're always a good sport.
18: Yeah, okay. Uh, Also, when you said about the question why... You reminded me of somebody asked a Jewish man, "Why do you Jews answer a question with a question?" And he besp- and the Jewish guy responded, "Why not?" <laughs> you reminded me of that.
1: I like that one a lot, actually, Charles. I yeah, may steal think, that oh, one. Was goody, yeah. That's a good one.
18: Anyways, um, th- tonight when I picked or oh, this morning, whatever, in the wee hours, when I picked up, the, uh, started listening to your program, I believe I heard you say that oh, that almost everything is it's okay to. Debate it, discuss it. Is it right? Is it wrong? I think I, I personally beg to differ. I would say maybe ninety-seven percent of the time, yes, but there is those few percent that no. As an example, last night, which was interesting, the whole situation about the, you were discussing whether the math is racist or not. I object to a certain point. I, if I was a host of a radio show, I would also do the program because that's what people are talking about. But why do I object to it? Well, let's put it this way. I, I believe a few, a few years ago, maybe longer, a black gentleman asked, I think it was Alan Dershowitz, I'm not sure. He challenged Alan Dershowitz to a debate whether the Holocaust happened. And that's the was, Dershowitz responded, no problem, but first we'll debate whether slavery happened in America. You see, no black person wants to discuss whether the slavery happened in America or no Jewish person wants to discuss that the Holocaust happened because it lends credibility. to so maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. Who, who won the debate? There's nothing to talk about. American slavery happened, and the Holocaust happened. Now, what I object to a certain point, I mean, you just keep saying it's insane, absurd, absurd to say that math is racist. But yet some people came out there looking for the reason because there must be some validity to it. I, had I been the, the, um, the host of the show, I would have said nothing about wokeism or almost nothing about wokeism should be discussed. Why? Let's see. Um, Bragg, the bodega guy, I'm sure 90% of the people uh, of the audience, as well as yourself, of course, Frank, know what happened. He's the rest of the bodega guy. That's the Dolan Gamara. That's like punishing the, the victim. It's, it's pure insanity. For decades, I've been saying, somebody asked me, hey, Charlie, are, are you sure? I would say I'm as sure as I know that I'm a male, not a female. Well, now, I don't know. I'm one of 57 genders. Who knows what I am? It's preposterous. They're trying to destroy the government. By the way, when they're trying to be a, a kind to, to, to the criminal, they're not being kind. you want to be kind. Why are you allowing what's happening in Chicago, Philadelphia, Detroit? All right, right Charles. All right, Charles. Thank, Thank
1: you. you. Thank you. We're getting off the beaten path a little bit there. Charles is a good guy and a long-time listener, so I was trying to uh, indulge him as as long as I could. But we, we got to a point that even I couldn't follow. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Konkuma. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Another great show like usual. Thank you. Thank uh, you.
3: I'm going to say on topic, I was uh, watching over the weekend that Perfect Bid. It's like you read my mind. Um, I hurt my shoulder, so I really didn't get to do much around the house. So me and my wife sat down and we were watching Netflix. And um, what a great program. Uh, I thought it was really well done. I love Bob Barker. I watched it ever since I was a little kid. And uh, with the pickup trucks, I find them, because they're more versatile – um you know you can uh you know take your family and if you're out and you see something that you want to buy you don't got to run home and switch cars you got the uh tailgate you just drop the tailgate drop what you want in it you know um and they make them so much more fuel efficient these days and they're not making them like they used to with the eight cylinders now they're using the turbocharged six cylinders where you're actually saving money uh Mm. they like and there's more talk to them for towing. Um, I'm not an electric car person. I don't think I'll ever get myself to buy an electric uh, truck or car. But uh, the way they're making the pickup trucks today are. Amazing, They're amazing.
1: Well, let me ask you, Joe, and that's interesting, and uh, I hope your shoulder recovers quickly. But why do you think that even people that may not need to use a pickup truck for towing or hauling cargo or anything, why do you think that even they're uh, purchasing a pickup truck? What is it about the pickup truck that people seem to find so appealing, even if they are not necessarily using it for what we – Generally, tend to view the pickup truck as being used for. Well, they're
3: also good in uh, bad
1: weather, Frank. Well, so, like look what's happening
3: to you right now. Now you got to borrow somebody's truck to move this refrigerator. So if you already have a pickup, you don't have to worry about borrowing. You know what I'm saying? And when if it snows, the great in the snow, the great in the high water. um
1: And like I said, it's. It's it's an it's an investment because you don't have to go rent a U-Haul. Right. No, well, that's a know. great point. That's a good point. Hey, uh, thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Pat is in Syracuse. Hello, Pat.
17: Hi. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, dear. I'm. Uh, I work for Goods and Toddman, the TV producers of The Price Is Right. Uh, and what's my line? And about six different shows they had on at one time.
1: Well that's um, that's great. I bet you you've got some great stories.
17: No, well, not really. I met a lot of famous people and we had a they were a wonderful corporation. Goodson, tobman TV uh TV producers. They were All right. Fabulous.
1: Well, well that's uh, that's met, good good to know. What what was your opinion on uh my discussion with Ted Slauson?
17: Very nice. Very. it was very nice. Uh enjoyed him. He you know, was there, and I like your uh, questions to him and all.
1: Well, that's very kind oh. of you, Pat. Thank you. You're out of the game show business these days, though, I guess.
17: Oh, God. I was only a secretary
1: there. Well, let's say only a secretary. Uh, secretaries <laughs> play an important role. Look at uh, Melissa DeRosa. Thank you, Pat. 800-848-9222. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick.
19: Yes, good morning, Frank. Oh. Two quick things. One about the uh, game show and another about the pickup. Sure. About the game show. All right. Game show. I had a coworker. I was living in Southern California in the mid 70s. And he, he went on one of these shows. I think it was uh, make a deal. And he won a bunch of stuff, including a boat. And so they, uh, let me ask you something. Like, I, I didn't get this part. Are they still collecting the taxes? Do you have to pay the taxes to where they give it to you tax free? I uh,
1: I don't know. I, I actually don't know this.
19: Okay. The reason being is because he got screwed with that. They, uh you know he, They hit him with this tax thing. And he goes, okay, well, I'll sell the boat. I'm not really a boat person. and pay off all the taxes. And they say, this is what got him. No, you have to pay the taxes to the government up front before we can release the prize.
12: Mm. And
19: it's like, hmm. And isn't it funny that they had a plan in place that you could sign the, the prize back to the show so you weren't liable for the tax? And it's like, this seems like a scam to me when I heard it. You know, it's like they know you're not going to be able to come up with $11,000 cash for their taxes. So they'll, they just get the prizes back. It was all a scam, you know? Oh
1: well, so that's my Yeah, that's interesting. I, uh, I didn't know. Uh, you know, somebody was telling me about this recently, but I don't know what the story is in terms of taxes and game shows. Uh, but I don't think that was at play in the Ted Slauson-Terry story or the story we were talking about in The Perfect Pit. But it is interesting. I w- I'm going to look into that as well because uh, if I ever become a very famous celebrity, I'd like to go on Celebrity Jeopardy. You know? Although I guess the money that you win, is it goes to your charity anyway, right? But uh, we'll see. I, I've always – I always wanted to go on a game show and win some money or win some great prizes, and I was never really sure how the taxes would work in my case. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve.
9: All right, Big Frank, and don't forget the Steve from Manhattan factor with the ratings. That's right. Up. Believe
1: me, I'm appreciative of it. I, you know that landline is uh, worth the price of uh, taking your call alone.
9: That's it. And I just let people on a little secret. A, a lot of times, it would be the screener blocking my calls, not the host. And uh, but uh, quickly with the metrics, metrics, then I get to the meat and potatoes of the cause. The metrics Act was signed by globalist Gerald Ford in '75. It was optional to use either the imperial system, our system, or the metrics. But the American people rejected it. They didn't like it. it but it did go out. You remember the one-liter bottle yep, of Coke yep. and stuff. Some metrics were used in Major League Baseball distances, but picture like a carpenter who's been a carpenter for 20 years, and the next day you tell him he's going to speak Polish and not English. That would be the equivalent of changing it to to metrics for these
1: guys. It was <laughs> I insane. I, do, I don't think it's the same, right? I mean, yeah. I, it, it's it, it's cost. telling people you have to, to speak Polish rather than English the next day. It's not the same as saying you have to use uh, liters instead of gallons. It's not.
9: Yeah, all right, with the cars, with the carpenters, I believe would go nuts. Have a carpenter call it. The thing is, uh, with the cars, first of all, uh, how about seeing the road? I mean, you need a bigger car to see the road. Uh, a lot of people with bare backs like the comfort- comfortability of getting into an SUV and a pickup instead of getting into a car where they have to get lower and they have a bare back. And uh, let's face it, it's marketing, too, with SUVs and pickups. They don't really call them trucks. They are really trucks. Women wouldn't buy them if you call them a truck. So there's a lot of marketing involved. American people are trendy people. But I really believe a car has, has to fit your needs, not what you think you should be driving or try to impress people. Sure. Because in the city, how are you going to park a giant pickup truck if you're oh, parking? Yeah. It would be oh. insane doing yeah. something like that. But the But the bottom line here is, folks— it, with the gas and everything, I don't know how some people afford it, but uh, some of the dealerships are offering free gas stations if you buy a pickup truck or something.
1: <laughs> is that true? What gas? Th- what dealers are those?
9: And I'm only joking around, but a football player <laughs> during the gas crisis of the 70s bought a gas station because he didn't want to wait on the lines. I think they had odd and even numbers back then. Yeah, that's right. I, that's
1: plate. right. Thank you, Steve. 800 Pamela is in central New Jersey. Hello, Pamela.
16: Hi. I was one of the, uh, actually the first woman on my street to buy a pickup, uh, over 17 years ago. And, um, I bought it for, as a workhorse and, um, you know, I saved a lot of animals with it. My husband has it. We haul trailers. He's into motorcycles and everything. And, and, um, over the years, uh, you know, we're not happy with the changes in the pickups. I don't need all those bells and whistles. I don't need a camera to parallel park. I don't need all this, this added stuff. And the aerodynamics of it, yes, they're getting rid of the beds and building too much up front for style. And I, I think they're hulky, they're ugly, they're not the workhorses they used to be. And it's all, and now they're you, you can't touch them. They're, they're so expensive.
1: So why like do you You really think, want the status symbol. Every, every Okay, that's what I was going to ask you. Everything you said makes sense to me. Why, then, do you think these pickups are evolving to produce less bed and more cab? You think it's all about a status symbol?
16: Absolutely. When I got my pickup, all of a sudden I started seeing a lot of women driving pickups. And they would admire me having one. And I didn't do it for the showiness of it.
1: Right, I you did, did it, it for and, utilitarian and, purposes.
16: Exactly. And I get a lot of and I I love my pickup, but you know, pickups were not known to be safety vehicles back in the day. They're pretty light. If you get hit on the bumper, if you have a strong uh hauling bumper, yeah, yeah, if somebody hits you, you know, you'll you'll survive it uh without too much damage, but they they were always known as being light on the road. You know, they flip easily. You got to put weight in the back. So they they weren't known as a safety thing. So now with the aerodynamics, I don't like the look of them. They're hulky. They're bulky. Um, I, I like just a plain all. And you might say, oh, that's because you know you're a baby boomer and everything. No, 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 no. They've added. It, it's added to the price. Huh. You can't. You can't touch. And that's just basic. Uh, a pickup now for sixty-two thousand dollars. And I don't want all that junk. I don't I didn't even need power windows. I, I find them a safety hazard with children and everything. $62,000. Uh,
1: wow. Pamela, thank you for this. I yeah. want to try and grab some other people before we get to the uh, $1,000 minute with our new uh, first holding, first airing uh, philosophy. Bobby is in Ronkonkoma. Hello, Bobby. Hello, sir. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. I want to
8: uh, ping off the the last lady. I had a 1968 El Camino that was dropped on a suburban frame, and I was a top dog in the neighborhood, man. This this thing was cool, and forget the gas prices on that right now. But I find that being um, having a lot of trucks in my life, you're higher up and you're safer than these little cars. I have this little Honda Civic a 94, And I feel um, intimidated by these cars and these truck drivers behind me, you know, and maybe it's just a mindset, hey, I've got this big truck behind you, and I've got this air horn, and I'm going to make you feel – I'm going to belittle you. And, uh, you know, because it was not an American car, and maybe that's
1: something to it, uh, but I, I digress. But anyway, thank you, sir, for taking my call. Oh, sure Bye. thing, Bobby. Thanks for uh, the insight. 800 9222. Mike is in South Carolina. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Howdy. I want to give a shout
13: out to my friend uh, Giuseppe from Ronconcuma and the legendary status on talk radio, Steve from Manhattan. Naturally. Well, pickup trucks. Yeah, interesting. Um, I had a couple of pickup trucks. I had a uh, Toyota Tacoma. Uh, years ago, I had a Colorado. But they bumped up the size of the Colorados, a larger truck, and I really was uh, surprised. About 40 years, uh, F150, the largest selling. I, I traded in my um, my Toyota Tacoma. It was five years old, 87,000. I got a good deal in Florida when I had my villa down there, and now I got uh, uh, a hatchback Toyota, smallest car I've had in years. So what I'm gonna look for. On a trade-in is pre-owned Ford Ranger, four-cylinder. I, I've done side jobs in the past, and uh, I've had a few pickups. But people have this fascination. That lady was right. Uh, bells and whistles. I don't need that. But you know, they're gas guzzlers, and then people that got deep pockets and want to, you know, fill up a, a large truck. That, that's their choice. I'm gonna look for, uh, and I'll play poker with the dealer. You know, when I work out a deal with a uh, pre-owned uh, Ford Ranger, four-cylinder. I don't need a four-wheel drive because I'll be relocating down here, um, you know. But
1: it's fascinating. And uh, all right, Frank. Good, uh, show as usual. Thank, good show as usual. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Uh, let's see. Dave is in Maryland. Hello, Dave. Hey, Frank. Hi, Dave. Good to talk to you. How are you doing, man? Doing great. Uh, how are our, our friends over at WCBM hanging in there?
8: I guess they're doing okay. They don't let me know, and
1: I don't ask. (laughs) Don't ask, don't tell. Sometimes that's the best philosophy.
8: That's it. it. We're talking about pickup trucks. My wife and I both have Toyotas. First pickup truck I've ever owned, and I love it. You want to know why I got it? It's got room. I'm a big guy. It's got plenty of room inside the cab for me to spread out and enjoy myself drive my parents around in the back seat. I go, I do competitive shooting. I get all my stuff to the shoot range. That's why I have a pickup truck.
1: Well, why then though, Dave, because an SUV has a lot of space as well for a lot of the, you know, for passengers and and things. Why is a pickup truck superior to a sport utility vehicle?
8: Well, you can build in the bed of the pickup truck. You can put a cover over it, and you can build the whole inside of the bed with um, storage and wood cabinet type of thing where you can pull your gun in and out of. You, I mean, competitive shotguns are pretty pricey, so you want to have a nice carry area for the, for the gun. I, I um, walk the courses the sporting clay courses. So I have a push buggy, if you will. I have a storage cabinet in the back, plenty of room in there and all the room inside the cab.
1: Real quick, Dan, what do you think of what that woman, uh, Pamela, was saying about how she's unhappy with how the the size of the bed has shrunk over the years for the larger cab size? You're happier about the larger cab size.
8: You can buy a pickup truck with a larger cab, with a larger bed. Any one you want, they're out there. What do, you, what do you buy the pickup truck for? What you need? Yeah, what you're going to use it for?
1: Dave, thank you. I got to run. Uh, those of you that are holding, uh, Steve, Rich, Dennis, Dave J. Well, oh, we had two Daves in Maryland. I guess this is the show that all the Daves in the uh, in the state of Maryland are listening to. Please continue to hold, and we'll get to your comments in the order that they were received. However, if you would like a chance at winning $1,000, then be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. We're going to play the $1,000 Minute in a moment. And if you're the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, we're going to ask you 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And if you can answer them, you'll be $1,000 richer. Simple as that.
0: Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
17: tell you about Ahab, the Arab, the sheik of the burning sands. He had emeralds and rubies just a dripping off of him and a ring on every finger of his hand. He wore a big old turban wrapped around his head and a scimitar by his side. And every evening about midnight he'd jump on his camel named Clyde.
1: And Ray and Stevens, one of the great novelty singers and songwriters of all time. It is his birthday today. 84 is. years old. The man is—it's um, more than just novelty song. He's—he's he's a great comedian, a great singer, a wonderful songwriter, and uh, he's got a lot of—he's won Grammys. Everything is beautiful. Uh, misty and a lot of novelty hits other than uh, Ahab the Arab uh, the streak is great too happy birthday to Ray Stevens wherever you are i know he's a a georgia guy i don't know if he still lives down there but i uh, i know he's from there originally there was uh, i don't know that i don't know that he's around anymore but there was a wrestler back in the day by the name of Ray the Crippler Stevens And uh, he was, no, he passed away, Uh, but he was fierce back in the day. Uh, Absolutely fierce. All right. Uh, Without further ado, it is time for The Other Side of Midnight
0: presents. It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank.
1: Morano, thank you, Chris Libertini. Let us say hello to Mike in Maryland. Hello, Mike. How you doing? I'm well, Mike. Uh, you've heard this segment before, many times. All right, great. So, uh, well, we're re- relatively new to Nevada uh, to uh, Maryland. How are you enjoying the show uh, out there? Oh, we love it. Oh, great. What would, would you listen to before?
8: Uh, I actually didn't. I uh, I have the uh, five a.m. to uh, in the afternoon shift, so I'd go in the mornings, just started listening to the radio. Wonderful.
1: Well, great. Well, we're glad we're giving you something to listen to now. All right. Uh, so, so, if you're familiar with the rules of the game, we'll just go ahead and get started. How many days are in a week?
3: Let's go with seven.
1: Who was Donald Trump's vice president? Pence. What continent is attached to North America? North America. What continent does it touch? South America. Who developed the theory of relativity? Um, Einstein. What football team defeated the New York Giants on Saturday? The Buffalo Bills. Oh, no. I'm sorry, Mike. It was the Philadelphia Eagles. Damn it. I almost said that. Uh, I'm sorry. Not a football uh, guy, I guess. I'm not. That's okay. All right. Well, you know, that's the thing. You listen to this show, you get a little bit of everything. So you got four questions, right? You lost on the fifth. I'm going to put you on hold, but, um, give your information to Christian or Kenneth and they will take it and, uh, we'll send you a consolation prize. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Please keep listening and please keep calling. Thanks. Appreciate it. 800 848-9222 848 if you want to comment on uh, anything else we've covered thus far. And by the way, if you want to get uh, some of the great Other Side of Midnight swag that we have to offer, the mugs, the jerseys, the towels, the pillows. I keep saying I want to buy one of these pillows, but I haven't done so yet. You can go to the online store. It's store.othersideofmidnightshow.com. That's store.othersideofmidnightshow.com. show dot com. And whatever you choose to order, if you use the um if you use the promo code Frank15 at checkout, you will save 15% on whatever you order. There's some great stuff on there. Honestly, we're lucky to be uh able to offer so much great merchandise. In addition to it being um, Ray Stevens' birthday today, uh, today is also the birthday of none other than um, Neil Diamond. We were playing some Neil Diamond yesterday with uh, "Sweet Caroline." I am hearing that that Neil Diamond musical is uh, is wonderful, so I'm looking forward to checking checking that out. Checking that out today is also National Peanut Butter Day. I am a peanut butter enthusiast, and uh, I, I am going to try to avoid doing my favorite guilty pleasure, which is when I see a jar of peanut butter sticking a spoon in it, and then sticking just a glob of peanut butter in my mouth. Because peanut butter, you know, it's not exactly a health food, let's face it. It's not the worst thing for you, but something when you're trying to take off a few pounds, not the kind of thing that you should be including in your uh, diet. And today would have been John Belushi's birthday. You know, it's funny, you think about it, John Belushi, he died... It's such a sin, you know. He died at eight, at uh, thirty-three years of age. You think about all the um, the incredible body of work that he completed in such a short amount of time. I mean, you got the the music, you got the movies, you got his work on Saturday Night Live, all sorts of other things, and uh, it's just such a uh, such a shame. Also, actor Ed Helms. Celebrating his birthday today, and it would have been Ernest Borgnine's birthday today, one of my favorites, who uh, unfortunately passed away uh, far too young at the age of 95. Hey, speaking of calls, i got to give a shout-out to uh, my friend Rich Valdez. Uh, Rich Valdez used to be the associate producer for um, Mark Levin, and uh, he's filled in on a bunch of different shows over the years. I'm sure you've heard him. Great guy, smart guy. And a a longtime friend of mine, (laughs) he now – now, he took over for Jim Bohannon on Jim Bohannon's syndicated show. It's on another network, but they do a great job. And um, Rich Valdez is apparently even in the position where he's taking calls uh, about me on his nationally syndicated show. I mean, you think about it. This guy's a big shot doing this nationally syndicated show, and uh, he's got to deal with people calling in and complaining about me. Oh,
4: you mean my good friend and mentor who who taught me in large part, along with the great one, Mark Levin, how to be a radio host, Curtis Sliwa.
15: No, I'm talking about Frank
4: Morano. Oh, I love Frank Morano, good friend of mine. Uh, we're, we're all cut from the same cloth. Lamentably, I guess you're just a little older than me, and I grew up in a different era of, of, of talk radio with Bob Grant and others, and I learned a lot, you know, getting under the tutelage of um, Mark Levin and John Batchelor. Curtis Lee with some amazing talk show hosts and all very different in their own right. Some are humorous, some are, uh, are a little bit more snide and snarky. Um, uh, everybody does it a different way. I'm, I tend to, you know, I have my moods. I go this way, I go that way. And, uh, lamentably, you know, you don't like them and you don't like me. So I don't know what you're going to do. Maybe satellite radio is going to be the, the cure for you, but thank you for the call. We do appreciate it. I'm looking forward to your next call on how to tell me how to do my job. I will keep it in mind and I do appreciate it. All right. Well, actually the the operative part of that call wasn't included
1: there in the in the clip, but he did a whole big complaint about how he doesn't like what Rich is doing and he says, uh, "You're starting to sound like that other guy on uh, WABC that doesn't do any topics of interest to anybody." And uh so I'm sorry you didn't get to hear that uh that part of that call, but it was it was fun and I appreciate Rich. Um uh, uh, being so complimentary and having my back, Rich is a great guy and uh, does is a great talk show host as well. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Let me say hello to Dennis in Cold Spring. Hello, Dennis. Hello, Frank. Great show.
18: Thank everybody you. Everybody talking. Everybody talking about trucks is spot on. Even Pamela, she, especially Pamela. We have my son drove a Tundra in Afghanistan in two thousand twelve. Great truck. My wife has a horse. You want to meet nice women? Go to a few e coin events and see all the women driving up in their in their pickups. But the F one fifty too many brains, too many parts, too many break-ins. But a great truck. But uh,
1: was the last thing you said too many break-ins? Break-ins.
18: Everything breaks in the truck. The brain. They have a brain that controls everything. Really? The warning now. Yeah, electric's off, but it's really on. So we get to to replace that warning two thousand dollars.
1: Huh. Well, I didn't know that. Well, Dennis, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Hey, I do want to mention this. Um, the net, you know, ever, you know, I feel like we just got through with Election Day and now we're already getting ready for the next election or the election after that. And so one of the uh, one of the elections that uh, the Republicans are going to be are going to be focused on in 2024 is the West Virginia U.S. Senate race. And West Virginia is one of the most conservative states in the whole country, and yet one of the people in the U.S. Senate from Virginia is a Democrat, at least for now, Joe Manchin. And the NRSC, the National Republican Senate Committee, is now out with a new direct mail and digital ad campaign portraying Joe Manchin as a Davos Trekking elitist and they're firing the first of many shots to come ahead of a potential reelection. Now, Manchin has not even announced what he plans to do in 2024. He is, as of now, the he's very popular, but he's the only Democrat who can realistically hold a Senate seat in one of the most conservative states in the country. But he's not even committed to running for reelection. He's not even committed to running as a Democrat. He's open to switching parties, to becoming a Republican or an independent. And that's why I think what the Republicans are doing here nationally is so incredibly foolish in targeting Joe Manchin, of all folks. Here is um, Joe Manchin on Meet the Press Sunday, this past Sunday, when he was uh, asked about what he's going to do. Is he going to run for Senate? Is he going to run as a Democrat, as an independent, a Republican? Is he going to run um, for president? What's he going to do? Here
4: he is talking to Chuck Todd on Sunday. You run for office in 2024. You're going to run as a Democrat? Chuck, I haven't made a decision what I'm going to do in 2024. I've got two years ahead of me now to do the best I can for the state and for my country. What's on the table? Is re-election on the table? Everything's on the table. Is running for governor on the table or no? No, I've done that. That you've ruled out. I've done that.
0: So everything on the table, there's basically only one other thing, the presidency. Is that something you would do outside the Democratic Party? The only thing
4: I can tell you is what I will do is whatever I can when I make my decision, what I think is the best that I can support and represent the people of West Virginia, but also be true to this country and the constitution of this country. That sounds like somebody that's looking for a way into national politics. Well, you know, every senator is on a national... I understand that, but you know where I'm going. I know where you're going, and the bottom line is... is You're not telling me no. I'm telling you that I'm going to do everything I can to make sure... And when I make my decision, I make it based on what's best, what I think I can do to support and best for my country and my state.
1: uh, So I I like a lot of what Joe Manchin says, and I like Joe Manchin. I I would vote for Joe Manchin, maybe, maybe. Um, But um, I think his approach is exactly the right one, and the approach from the National Republicans is exactly the wrong one. Instead of running ads targeting Joe Manchin, they should be romancing Joe Manchin. They should be trying to get him to run for re-election as a Republican. Um, but I'll tell you this. We've chronicled this before. And there's the last thing I'll say, and then we'll go to 15 seconds of fame, 800 uh, 848 if you want to start queuing up. The majority of Democrats prefer someone other than Biden. The majority of Republicans prefer someone other than Trump. And yet, as we stand here now— The most likely scenario is a Trump versus Biden rematch. So I think if you had a ticket, an independent third party ticket of with Biden and Trump as the major party candidates, and then a ticket of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema running for president and vice president on a third party ticket, I think you'd see a lot of people. Consider that mansion cinema ticket. I really do. I really do. I might be one of them. Now, they're not really where I am on foreign policy, so I'm not committing to voted, voting for them, but it would be interesting. It would certainly be interesting. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead.
0: The other side of midnight. 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 Side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
4: Place to find. If the days are long, when the sun goes down, you might
1: need a place to call your own. Somewhere out there on the other side of midnight, you might hear a voice of This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, my thanks to Stevie G for this song. Stevie G, it's available on iTunes. Just search The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, Stevie G and the Midnighters. Apparently I heard uh, that uh, David Crosby has a version of The Other Side of Midnight also. I know uh, Curtis Lee will plays that version. I'll take the st- Stevie g version any day of the week all right time now for you to be heard for 15 seconds 800-848-9222 uh, you want to stay in touch with me you can find me on twitter at frank morano you can join our facebook group just go to uh, just search morano radio fans and haters on uh, facebook uh, or you can email me and i'll add you to our email list Frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Meantime, it's time for you to be heard on any subject you like for 15 seconds as part of...
0: The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Faith. Raji! Yes, indeed.
8: To boost listenership,
13: multi-billionaire John Kaczmadidi should generously give away
1: WABC merchandise to its listeners to wear in public. Ray in the Bronx. Conspiracy theory, Frank. Ted won $1,962 on the price is right. Was that the year he was born? Kumbaya to Steve and Mike. Go, Curtis, go. Mike in New Jersey.
9: Morning, Frank. The best thing about Curtis and Avery's rants about you on the weekends are... We get a few more hours of the best of Frank Murano and the other side of Midnight. A win for you and a win for us.
1: Fred in Yonkers.
9: Good morning, Frank. My friend Larry's blinded and Mr. Magoo. He had to go grocery shopping. He got to the front door and fell right through to the basement.
1: I said, Larry, stay away from Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad. Bill in Connecticut. Frank, how come you don't tip Omar the security guard? Well, I feel like I, that and that's fair. That's fair. Uh, we're tipping him in refreshments, but uh, Kenneth made a liar out of me on that front. So, so be it. We'll try and make it up to him today. Cheech and Howard Beach.
9: Globalism is alive and well. What is happening to Donald Trump is what happened to Senator Joseph McCarthy in the 50s. Wake up,
1: America, and get Antifa. And William in Westchester. Where's Lydia? She went to Newsmax. I announced that. Frank in Blue Mountains. Yeah, another prediction for you, Frank. It was a week
5: off. The 31731 number comes this Thursday.
1: All right. We'll see what happens. Anthony. The American people didn't give
9: one inch on the, Ameri- the marriage system. Reject globalism. Repeal the 65 Immigration Act. Go Pack Go.
1: And finally, Ray in New Jersey. Mayor Adams should flood this subway with
3: police. we got to stop this crime. He's a fraud, Mayor Adams. All hey.
1: right. Thank you, Ray. Uh, that slams the lid on things for today. I will be back tomorrow with the great Dr. Sky. There's a lot of space news, a lot of aviation news, a lot of weather news. I've been compiling a list all week uh, of subjects to go over with Dr. Sky and... A lot of churches are shuttering. Why? We'll explore it with a guy who knows a lot of other stuff to get to tomorrow as well. Frank Moreno, good day.